design suspension work uh, for race cars is what I do for them right now. Yeah. Yeah. McLaren does. Yeah. There was a, for the S2000, there was, um, I like how we talk about McLaren and S2000 in the same phrase. Within like like three minutes, we're talking S2000s, Honda Civics, and McLaren. This is a great podcast. This is pretty awesome. Welcome to the car show. (laughs) That's exciting. Okay, so you got to live with the rich people in the mansion. Mm -hmm. Because they wanted to talk about suspension all day? Because they just uh, took a liking to me. They just felt like... You know, if I say yes to this, I'm going to get fired. (laughs) (laughs) I know we lost a lot of listeners, but I think think a lot of the nerds at home going, yeah, keep going. I like these guys. These guys are awesome. Uh, I have a suspension boner right now. (laughs) uh, Shout out to my fellow nerds out there because uh, we make the world go around. Uh, Like I said, engineers lead the way. To the billions around the world on YouTube in 4K and audio streaming services like Pandora, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you like this content, please subscribe, like, comment, and share. And now on to the podcast. A lot of you are joining us from originally from Miami, now in Las mm-hmm. Vegas. Correct. You work on suspension. Are you are you in a race team or what's your uh I am so um and I've been doing this for a very long time, but this is what I'm currently doing for uh, BMW Motorsport North America. Yeah. Uh, like I mentioned, and um, design uh, suspension work uh, for race cars is what I do for them right now. Wow. Um, just until last year, uh, before spring, I was uh, part of their data analysis team. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were all working remotely. We had several teams and several layers of the company. Um, and uh, sp- spring of 2021 they moved me to the design team for the new race car that is going to debut in 2023 Ooh, exciting so that's what i'm doing right now that's what i've been doing and um we just completed that work right before the holidays and we handed the chassis and suspension over to the aero team now they're doing their work oh. uh, so it's uh, when it is, comes is to it race car a, building is there's a lot of layers to is it is it on a computer model or is this so we all start with computer models and and we'll start with the uh, information that we have gathered on track yeah. Uh, and that's where all my data analysis experience comes in to the team. And um, so we take all that information, we plug in into the, uh, the computers and, and we come up with models. And what's going to determine at the end of the day, if we win or lose, is what happens actually on track. So we can model in the lab all we want and <laughs> we can come about this close. But what gets us over is what happens actually on track. So the, the cars you're working on, do they look like F1 cars or they look like the baddest M3 you ever saw? Not the baddest M3 I ever saw. So uh, until last year, I was working with the M8 okay. and the uh, um, IMSA uh, GTLM uh, series. Um, so that uh, M8 got phased out okay. and uh, IMSA made some changes to GT to GT racing. So now they brought in the M4 GT3, uh, which I didn't get to work on because it had already moved me to the prototype division, mm. um, now named LMDH, which is going to be a um, universal platform that can race stateside and I can race over in Europe. Mm. One oh. car. You just move the steering wheel over the other side. No, I wish we could. <laughs> I wish we could do that. It's, it's just it's just a universal platform where um, manufacturers like BMW, Acura, who's going to join Audi, Volkswagen, they don't have to redesign a car for it to your race in Europe with their regulations. The car can uh. race here, there, and everywhere. 
Uh, so it's also going to lower cost for developers and, and factories, which is what uh, the WEC and um, IMSA is looking for. So yes, I've so done so most of my work in sports cars, and now we move to I move to prototypes. But but for our listeners, does it look like a normal car we'd see on the street, or does it look like something that wouldn't be legal? So the GT cars look a lot like what you see on the street. Uh, okay. The GT4 looks a lot like the GT4. Um, yeah. uh, I can uh, imagine an M4 a, that awesome you see on the street. BMW, yeah. yeah, with the with giant grill and the huge kidneys. Mm. It looks exactly like that, just nice. with some aero modifications and, and obviously race uh, stuff uh, and equipment in it. The M8 was the same giant M8 that you see on the street. Okay, uh, That thing was like six times wider than a Porsche. It's and, like a limo, uh, <laughs> kind of a limo, and uh, there's a lot of you know funny memes and things out there about the M8, but it was a really efficient car. Um, so that has been the evolution of BMW Motorsports and sports cars racing in the U.S., uh, bringing vehicles that are appealing to the public. Yeah. They start out in the factory as your factory designed cars that go through production, but then they go into the racing division. So uh, most recently was the M6, then the M8. Now we're back to the M4 GT3. Uh, that at least sports car racing section of, of what we do is very appealing to the public because it looks like the car that you can purchase at the dealership. Yeah. Mm. Right. How much do you get from like F1 technology? Does it get passed down and you got, or where does it blend or does it blend? Actually it does blend. It does blend because um, depending on, you know, which racing series you're dealing with, you have a lot of the same tire manufacturers that you're dealing with. Um, we deal solely with KW suspension because BMW owns part of it mm. uh, as part owner of KW suspension. So a lot of things transfer over, but if you're talking about F1 prototype racing or uh, sports car racing, what we work on track and what we develop on track trickles down to the vehicles you guys drive. Mm. Uh, obviously BMW, Acuras and, and Toyota, which I used to work for too. Um, all that stuff that you see in your vehicles today was developed by us at least five years ago. Right. So all those new technologies that you see on a, on a car, we're already in planning and development at least four to five years. So once it hits production and you can go to your local dealership to buy a car, that stuff already we did mm. and we conquered and we achieved. Uh, yeah, but I'm it. not trying to race my sedan around. I'm just driving to school, right? <laughs> well, and that's the thing. A lot of the uh, things that you see in your own sedan, yeah. it could be, you know, you're thinking, oh, it's a grocery getter Camry. No, a lot of the things came from motorsports. Yeah. A lot of the internal pieces in the engine uh, and, and how they are able to have a long life, that longevity that was designed into those internal pieces came from motorsports. What was your, what's your specific uh, role there at, at BMW? So right now I'm part of the design and engineering team for the new uh, prototype car. Do they, do they break it up into like one person does maybe the struts, one person does? No, they break it up into different divisions. So we have the suspension division, which I'm part of, and uh -huh. we are a team of seven people and we all work together. Uh, I'm the only one in the West Coast. Uh, I'm working with guys from Spain, Italy, Germany, nice. and wow. you know it's all virtual. And, and then you have the aerodynamics division, you have the chassis division, uh, you have the engine uh, part of things. So all these layers have to come in at some point to build a car mm -hmm. that is actually gonna perform on track. Do you just dream about bolts on A-arms and... I dream a lot about computer aided design. That's <laughs> and the thing about engineers is that our, our brains never turn off. Yeah. Uh, we, we're always thinking about what's next or what we need to change to the car to make it better. Even when you're driving down the street, you can be thinking, oh, well, I'm going to the park, I'm going to the grocery store. For us, it's like, why is my car moving in this direction over the bumps? Or why do I hear a different pitch and wind noise over my car when I'm passing a truck on the freeway? our brains are working that way all the time. Mm. So it's, it's weird, but at the same time, it's entertaining. You keep yourself entertained a lot. 
you, you sound very calm, but this is like to most boys, like this is exciting. Like you're literally working on race cars. It's fantastic. Yeah, and, and it's exciting to a point because you need to understand that the work is very serious. Yeah. At the end of the day, we're designing machines and, and, and equipment and race car parts and things like that, that we have to put in the hands of a human. Yeah. We can design the best car possible, but if we don't blend in with our drivers well, we're never going to get anywhere. Uh, success depends on, at the end of the day, still a human. It could be an F1 car. Yeah. You still have to put it in the hands of a human. What, what if you don't win enough? Does, do you, does your job start to look uh, mm-hmm. suspect? Yeah. So <laughs> a, a lot of our contracts, yeah, absolutely. A lot yeah. of our contracts are, are based on uh, performance clauses. Yeah. Uh, oh. And we sign for that. Mm. So at the end of the day, if we're not performing, wow. the next person is going to come in and take my job. Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah. So uh, we're, yeah, we're under a lot of pressure because <laughs> it's, it's, stressful. It's, <laughs> it is very high stakes. It's, it's very interesting what goes on behind the drive, scenes. Drive, motherfucker, drive. <laughs> a lot of people don't know this. Blame the driver, <laughs> not you. And, and that's the thing. A lot of people see the driver. So let's, let's take the F1 reference. Yeah. Those are the guys in front of the cameras. They're in front of the microphone, right? Yeah. And they're the image and the face of the company. But there's a gang of people behind the scenes making this car possible. And for them to be also on a performance clause, it's, it's very mm. stressful. Yeah, it's very stressful. Yeah. At the factory, uh, yeah, there's a lot of sleepless nights. Wow. Hey, hey, does it help to be a smaller guy if you're a race car driver? Absolutely. Because you're mm. carrying around 20 less pounds or something, Thank right? you very Is much. That- yeah. <laughs> well, at the, end, at the end of the day, uh, when you design suspension, which yeah. is what I do, you're looking at that mass that you have to carry it from point A to point B. And oh, it's all okay. about mass and motion. Yeah. So if I have to carry a 6'5", 350 pound driver, my design shack is, climbing in there. I'm going to lose sleep over my design. Yeah. If you have to carry a five, seven, 165 pound guy like me, oh, design is cake. Nice. So that's another uh, thing that is behind the scenes that a lot of people don't understand is drivers are also on uh, not only performance clause contracts, but also body weight and body limits mm. because we have to design around them. So I can't have, for example, if I put somebody in a BMW M8, I can't have a driver who's 6'3", and then put a 5'6 guy in there. Right. Uh, even with a seat insert, I need to make sure the car is balanced and it meets the minimum weight requirements mm. and all that stuff to meet the rules. So uh, it's, it's, it's stressful for them, too. They need to stay in Wait, shape. So, so if you have a driver, how much, how much weight would he have to gain over the holidays for it to throw off your <laughs> ca- Like 10 pounds won't matter, right? Uh, yes, it does matter. Okay. So most of their contracts are, um, you need to stay within five to 10 pounds of your uh, uh, contract weight. Wow. Every time you show up to track and you go on the scales the moment you show up and a lot of them have lost their jobs because they cannot stay in shape. Wow. Yeah. It is very, very demanding, physically demanding on them. See, North America is the most challenging there because we have the most delicious food (laughs) available everywhere. And and not not to say anything bad about other series, but you see a lot of, (laughs) you see a lot of other series racing in North America, wink, wink. Yeah. Where the drivers look a little heavy, yeah, and I'm thinking, man, uh, these guys need to get in shape somehow. You know, because, uh, Are you talking about NASCAR trucks? Is that who you're? Uh, I didn't not, say anything. <laughs> um, so I see a lot of drivers who, who carry a little extra weight, you yeah. know, and I'm thinking, hmm, that's, uh, those contracts are a little lenient <laughs> compared mm-hmm. to some of the other contracts around the world. <laughs> but yeah, a lot of the drivers have that in their built-in the contracts. Uh, sure. I literally never thought about this. This is fantastic. Like. How behind the scenes of race car. (laughs) Absolutely. And and, and if you think, oh, I I can drive around the street pretty fast. I can be a professional race car driver. Yeah. You're in for a rude awakening. Already we've got the engineers jobs on the line (laughs) and we've got the drivers under strict weight limits. Exactly. This is fascinating. And a lot of the drivers that would drive for factory teams like BMW, Porsche, uh, Toyota, they are drivers who were plugged 
at a very young age, you know, mm. 13, 14 years old from the yeah. lower rankings. And they signed a contract with the factory. Once they get into their 20s, they've already been groomed, trained, prepared by the factory uh, to, to be what they want them to be. And it oh. comes down even to their weight and their physical strength and endurance. All that is prepared by the factory. So when you see them on TV, Oh yeah, they have years of training. So the, these poor slaves have never enjoyed a buffet or a, a bucket <laughs> of KFC. And, and the interesting never... part is that when we travel with the team, obviously we have a chef on site. Mm. A chef? We, oh okay. yeah, we travel with a chef uh, because what they eat is heavily regulated. Oh. So if you're part of the oh, team- Oh, I thought I was gonna say what you eat. I'm like, well-, well <laughs> and, and see, that's the thing. Now it's up to you. As, as one of the engineers or administration or team captains or whatever, do you wanna eat with the drivers? Or do you want to eat all of the other delicious food that the chef prepares? Mm. So there's, oh, there's two okay. menus every time you go to an event, <laughs> and it's up to you to like. Oh, that should only have healthy eat stuff. The, eat the torturing green stuff and, 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 the, and the grilled chicken, or you know, eat the pasta. So a lot of the guys go for the pasta, and, and yeah. because it's like oh, so delicious, and you're burning so many calories on track, and you're so tired from walking all day, and then some of us go for the greens and the grilled chicken and stuff like that. Gotcha. Is there a lot of champagne around? There is. There's a lot. There's a lot of alcohol. <laughs> in, in motorsports at the end of the day, of mm. course. Only um, one guy has to be sober <laughs> during the race. Yeah, there's, a, there's a lot of alcohol at the end of the race. Uh, a lot of uh, team personnel, they love their drinking. Okay. It's, it's, it's how they enjoy themselves. And that's they're cool. stressed out for, for Every, race day. Everyone has their own way to decompress. Yeah. You know, you know, some of us like to sleep or read. Some of them like to drink. <laughs> I just like yeah. to go into a coma and sleep for a while. I like to pass out. You know, whatever makes them comfortable. Yeah. If I was a manager at Mercedes uh, suspension prototype division, mm -hmm. and I asked you to give me some accomplishments that you've done at BMW, what would they be? Uh, oh, switching to the dark side. Accomplishments, <laughs> accomplishments at BMW, uh, three-time winners. Or actually of, maybe accomplishments in suspension then. Uh, were you working on suspension prior to BMW? I was. I was doing the same work for uh, Honda Performance Development, oh, and I did oh. that. And I did that in my early years for Toyota Racing Development too. Lim loves Hondas. So I. Oh, there you go. That's it. So uh, let's say you have an S two thousand for. Yes. Some of the stuff what? that we worked on. Who has an S two thousand? Some of the stuff that we worked on on track made it down to your S two thousand. And uh, accomplishments: uh, three time winners at the um, twenty four hours of Daytona. Uh, you know the Rolex twenty four. Um, Two-time winners at Sebring, the 12 hours. Um, six hours of road Atlanta, three-time winners. Uh, so all that suspension that, that comes from the factory and all the design that we put and time that we put, put in, in the suspension have, has won those races for the How factory. How about uh, specific um, details? Like what, what was it that you changed in a specific suspension piece or things that you that went through to help? What are your secrets? <laughs> like, like maybe yeah. you designed a spring differently. Maybe there was a load or the, the strut had a different. And, and it wasn't a, a design change on my part. It was more of a discovery. Um, so we go to a racetrack in Florida in central Florida, Sebring. We go there every year for a 12 hour race. This is the most treacherous track in the U S it's one of the most, Oh, uh, it is bumpy as heck. The surface is horrible. But somehow we go there every year. It's got alligators everywhere or what? <laughs> it's about as bumpy as an alligator. And, and what happens is that the stress and the suspension is very severe. Uh, so in a period of 12 hours, um, second year we were there, uh, the factory sent a different type of lower control arm uh, for the rear mm -hmm. because they thought it was going to be uh, a new design that was going to help 
release some of the stress. And it turns out that I was able to discover some stress cracks in the material uh, during testing. And then we send that information back to the factory for them to redesign and come up with a different composite to help. That track is so bad, so bumpy, so abrasive that we tear up parts there more than anywhere else. Mm. So as far as a personal accomplishment, discovering that little thing that could have broken us early in the race, yeah. in a 12-hour race, put us out of competition, the pieces, the control arms stay together for the length of the race. So wow. nice. I'd like to take credit for that. Sure, awesome, awesome. Was it carbon fiber or what was the... Uh... No, it's an aluminum uh, composite. Okay. Uh, and it's got some ceramic in there too. And it's just very intricate material. Hmm. Yeah. Um, especially for this track, just for this track, for this event once a year. Mm. So, you know, uh, the, the length that the factory has to go through to put the specific parts out there for a particular event is, is huge. Okay. So I know you've been working on suspension for a very long time. It sounds like I'm going to throw an idea out there and you could tell me how stupid it is. <laughs> <laughs> I've had this idea for a very long revolutionize time. Revolutionize the industry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, like I tell my students, there's no stupid questions. So go ahead. Please. You have three coil springs. It's crazy. <laughs> I think of, so I think of like um, the spring and the strut. Mm -hmm. What if it were to be like digit, not digitized, but say you almost eliminate the spring. I know this sounds stupid, but let me, let me, let me please, go with uh, it. Please elaborate. You have my attention. Yeah. And then you're going to use another strut the other way. And then it's going to be software driven where, um, where you get cameras to where it reads the front of the course. Okay. And then it's going to try to guess how much, um, how much suspension uh, correct me if i'm wrong on this next thing i think on some tracks if you push the suspension too far there's not enough time as as a car bounces and takes turns that strut needs to stretch and come back it has to it's called a suspension stroke stroke yeah so once the stroke hits it can actually bottom out from too much go, going up and down not not correct. enough time for it to reach back it's correct so i was thinking with software you get cameras to look at the course and there's going to be some tolerance. Like it's not going to be perfect. The cameras will try to predict how much it needs within the next hundred feet or 200 feet. And then it will control the two struts to Does Does that sound crazy? You know, if I say yes to this, I'm going to get fired. <laughs> it doesn't sound too crazy. And uh, you have the right idea. At the end of the day, we have a spring, right? A coil, whatever you want to call yeah. it. That coil is supporting a mass, right? Well, that coil is happy to go up and down and up and down as he wishes, right? That's what it's designed to do. It's a piece boing, of metal boing, 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 boing. and it's a boing, 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 boing. Right. What is the strut there to do? The shock is there to control that oscillation, yeah, yep. right? We don't have to have a camera system. We don't have to have any of that. As the, and right now, as the strut or shock is moving up and down, even as it's going real time over the track, it's feeding information to our data loggers. Oh, oh yeah, electronically. Yeah, yeah. We can use that during testing. We cannot mm. use it during the race because regulations prohibit us from having any type of electronic communication to the strut. Mm. But as it's going over the surface, like, as you mentioned, it's recording that stroke. It's recording the length of the stroke. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So then we adjust the valving to accommodate for that. So if we go from a track like Daytona that has a lot of changes to the surface, and then we go to Sebring, which is a constant boing, 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 boing mm. then we design the stroke we designed the valving inside that strut to be able to tolerate those stresses. Mm. So no camera needed. Mm. We do that during testing, and then we put that into our data loggers. So next time we go to the track, we look for the same type of data to, to be fed back to us so we can prepare the strut spring combination for the race. So you were on the right track. 
But are, are you like, saying you can't remove the spring entirely? The coil is kind of holding the weight of the car. So the, yeah, that's what that's what the coil that's what the spring is for. It has to hold the weight of the car. And okay. what happens too is a lot of people think, well, I'm going to go buy a coilover setup, right, for my S2000. <laughs> right. So here comes the coilover setup. You should spend your thirteen hundred dollars. Oh my gosh, you're so happy. You're going to put it on, and you're going to have Doctor E tune it, right? Yeah. Um, what happens is you buy something that's off the shelf, right? That designer made that coilover setup to work in this range of S2000s from all these years. Mm. Plus, perhaps it may even fit like a Honda Fit or so. Mm. They have to design in a wide range of things, right? Mm. So it's not specific to your car. So your car may go boing, boing, boing. When they put it in another car, it goes boing, 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 boing. Mm. And we can adjust for that. But when we design our race cars, it's very specific to what we do. Uh, so, so we're laughing because uh, Lim has an S2000. Well, that's how we met. That's oh, how we so met. Oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're sitting about 12 that's feet. Keep, that's why I keep making the reference. Wink, oh, wink. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> about 12 feet on the other side of that wall. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so, um, and that's what happens. A lot of folks do not understand the dynamics that go behind the suspension design. And they buy off-the-shelf products. And they don't realize that that wasn't really designed for your car. That was designed for like 50 different cars. Mm. The manufacturer is not going to put something very specific on the shelf. They're going to try to broaden their design so they can sell more product of the same design. So what do you think about the Olin's DFV? I forget the, the have you, have well, you? Olin's is a great product because their valving is superior to a lot of other products out there. Awesome. Uh, and it comes down to their valving. They still use a boing, boing, boing spring like everybody else. Right. It's all about controlling that oscillation that we talked about. Mm. That's what the strut needs to do. And then you have all the little adjustment clicks and things like that. They put that into the suspension dynos to figure that out. Yeah, Olin's is a great product. Uh, KW is a great product. I uh, use them for years. Uh, Moton, excellent product. I've uh, never had an issue with them. And it all comes down to that superior design. Mm. Also, you have to not gain 10 pounds. <laughs> That's, I don't have a contract. <laughs> Well, I was going to screw up your suspension. We, we can enjoy some delicious food. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let, let the drivers worry about the other stuff. And, and that plays a role, too, in, into the design is the driver weight, where we put that weight, how do we distribute that weight around the car? And then comes the next layer. And you said, okay, you guys are done. No, we're not done. Here comes the aerodynamic team adding a giant front wing or a giant rear wing that's within specifications. And that is adding pressure onto my suspension. So that downforce pushes down on your suspension. Bingo. Okay. Yeah, it pushes on the suspension. So I got to design for that too. Mm. Not just for the weight of the car and the mass in motion and the stresses from, you know, braking and accelerating and cornering. Now I got aerodynamics to deal with too. That adds weight to my suspension and stress too. Yeah. Over a period of a 24 hour race, that's a lot going on. So we have all these teams working together. All those layers I talked about at the beginning. Yeah. All those guys need to work together to make this car go around track efficiently. Mm. How did you get started in this career? Um, yeah, advertisement good. on a corkboard in college. Mm. So uh, I already been working on cars for many years. So you took auto shop in high school, right? I did not. I was self-taught. Oh. So I learned how to work on cars by myself by reading. Okay. So I did the not Chilton take on- auto manuals. <laughs> <laughs> I did a lot of those. And if I didn't have it, I had to go to the local library, check out the book or sit there read the information, mm. read the procedure, and then start working on cars. Oh, dude, you're from like the 50s or something. Oh, you know, man. I, I'm no spring chicken. I've been around for a long time, dude. I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm... You look I'm, good, man. You look young. I appreciate yeah. it. Yeah, I'm, I'm 45. Hey, so, looking real good. Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, so that's how I started. I started with interest in cars and motorsports. And then I didn't have any professional training, so I kind of taught myself how to work on cars first. Yeah. Then I went to college for engineering, and there was a 
a sign on a cork board in the student lounge that talked about, hey, TRD is looking for young engineers who are starting their careers for a test program in Georgia. Mm. Um, we want to give you hands-on. We'll, we'll put you there for three months working with different teams in a series that no longer exists. It was called Toyota Atlantic Series. Open wheel, like they look like Formula One cars. Yeah. Just smaller. And that's how I started. I took a leap of faith. I sent the application. They took me in and they flew me to Georgia three weeks later. Do you miss Georgia? Not that much. So, <laughs> not that Do you well. miss Waffle House? <laughs> I missed I missed the Waffle House on the side of the road. Uh, you know, my trips from Miami to Gainesville to Tallahassee. I missed I missed the Waffle House at three in the morning when you have to pull up on the you know pull over yeah. on the side of the road because you're tired from driving. So, yeah, so I you were uh, you were doing an engineering degree in Miami. In Miami, right? Where is it? Mechanical engineering, electrical, or? electrical, electrical. Okay. Yeah, electrical is my field of expertise. Uh, micro circuits is what I do. Micro circuits. So you, that's a kind of a big jump, or how's that? Well, see, out? at the end of the day, it's not a big jump because um, the basis of engineering is your you know, your physics mm. and your sciences, right? Um, so. I can be talking to a civil engineer, a mechanical engineer, an electrical. We all speak the same language. You gotta so be good at math. You gotta be good at math. You gotta love physics. Um, be good uh, with data. With, good with data. Yeah. But at the end of the day, our, all of our training and all our schooling, we have the same basis, the same foundation. We just, after that, take each a specialty. I took the electrical specialty. Puts me in a shame when I call myself a computer engineer, a software engineer. Uh -huh. I like to use that term. And then I think that I've had, I've encountered other people like uh, in your profession, not, okay. I, I forget what profession they were in, but they're like, you're not an engineer. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, if, if you design something, if you can build something uh, from scratch, you're an engineer at the end of the day. Mm, yeah. okay. But remember the first rule of engineering, make it idiot proof. Mm. Every college professor will tell you that. Mm. Make it idiot proof. Okay. Down to the visor on, the sun visor on your car. You flip it over, it says warning. Do not eat this visor or something like that. Mm. Or, or, you know, <laughs> do, do not hit your head with it. Yeah. Or, or, you know, do not do not spit at it or whatever. Yeah, wasn't there, didn't there used to be a thing where if it was hanging at just the right angle, that if you got into a frontal impact and you could just, it would chop right into your forehead in some fatal. And, and that's why a lot of anything that you just see, uh, that light on the corner there, it has a big warning label. Yeah. Do not eat this light. You know, do not, yeah. do not cook it in your oven. <laughs> engineers engineers have to design if you sell it proof. to a million idiots some idiot will find a way yeah. to and, and then and, and then there's where losses come from right so rule number one of engineering design idiot proof yeah it I may sound it may sound harsh but it's the truth i think the u.s is too it puts too much responsibility on the designer like they, if, they if do. you do something stupid with your chainsaw, uh -huh. how, you oh, know, yeah. it's like oh, yeah. you did something stupid. Like if you jumped off a roof with your chainsaw, it's not the chainsaw manufacturers. Because someone will find a way to blame the chainsaw manufacturer. Yeah. That's, that's the American way. But I feel so, like it's, it's our, so then it's our legal system that's punishing corporations for making useful absolutely. products, right? It's but just, if I'm a corporation that I want to sell my product in the U.S., I have to make it idiot proof. I right. put the warning on there, even though it may seem like the dumbest thing. Yeah. Uh, you have to put the warning on there if you really want to sell a product here. But Sad but true. But I think that kind of nerfing just makes people less cautious, right? It makes us stupider idiots bouncing around. Kind of like, um, you know, kids are very protected at uh, bus stops and mm -hmm. crossing. Like, look, I don't want to run over kids. Right. But the, you see kids behaving in the street. They're not looking. Then I don't give a shit. They have no fear of vehicles. When I was a kid, I would play in the street. But the minute a car came around the corner, Absolutely. I'd run off the street. Oh, yeah. So it made me very aware of, hey, these people aren't paying attention. I got to watch my ass. 
Well, I, I, I can give you an example. I work with the local school district too. Mm. And uh, middle schoolers, we call them middle schoolers because when they cross the street, they stand in the middle. Uh. There's something <laughs> about the middle of the street or the middle of the crosswalk that draws them to stay there. It's like magnetic. Yeah. And, and uh, that's why we call them middle schoolers because they like to be in the middle all the time and they don't yeah. care about traffic. Um, but, but it goes back to that um, and the evolution of, of the automobile too, if you want to talk about that. So when I learned how to drive, yeah, uh, it was stick shift clutch, no blind spot monitor. No. What, what was your first car? 69 Volkswagen Beetle. Mm. Woo. I bought it for 500 bucks oh, nice. wow. <laughs> with a summer job that I had at McDonald's. Wow, I can't believe we had it rusted out down there. Oh, it was rusted out. <laughs> there was no floor. Air there conditioning. Was no floor. There was no floor. And, and the, the passenger rear had a hole in the floor about this big. And South Florida rains a lot and it floods wow. a lot. And I had water rushing through the car. Oh, man. But I didn't have the money to fix it, but I at least I had a car that I could drive to school. Yeah. It's a different type of aerodynamics. Yeah, exactly. So I bought it with the, with the summer job. Yeah, wow, I had a McDonald's. Yeah. So that's, that's been the evolution of the automobile because people are so unaware of their surroundings. Mm -hmm. Now you have the backup camera and the blind spot monitors mm -hmm. or the automatic braking as you approach something too close. All those driver aids came out of necessity because people are not yeah. really good drivers anymore. They are so dependent on the technology that comes in vehicles right now yeah. that they tune out of the actual driving uh, where folks like me who learned to drive a long time ago, we're more tuned in into our actual driving. Yeah. So uh, that's another thing to look at and why vehicles have what they have these days as far as equipment and aids. Yeah. yeah. It's dangerous. It's dangerous out there. Yeah. I think that's the source of my road rage. Like I'm not a naturally angry person, <laughs> but if you do something stupid on the road, you're literally threatening my life because the, the consequences are so Absolutely. terrible, right? You're in a large moving mass at a high rate of speed. Yeah. Anytime you leave your house, you're taking your own life in your, you know, your life in your own hands because- right. You can be a great driver, but you got to look at everybody else. Yep. And and if there's a new driver, look out because they're depend <laughs> they're dependent on those assistant aides and things like that that are in the car. They're not really fully aware of what they're doing out nah, there. Nah, they're playing with their phone and mm -hmm. they're putting their music onto the Bluetooth. And Lack of attention to your surroundings is the biggest thing. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Do you want to go so, back to race cars or to, were you uh, to, uh, I'm sorry, I derailed, <laughs> derailed there a little Georgia, bit. Georgia, Toyota. So what were you doing oh, at yeah. that first, uh, that first, was that an internship, a job, it was, the job? It was an internship. We didn't even get paid for that, but at least it put us in, in like an apartment complex thing. So you actually had, you had to move and you, mm -hmm. you for, paid for, for them for three months, for three months, they paid uh, room and board for us. Okay. Uh, and then they uh, made us, uh, allowed us to work with different teams. So it was a group of about 12 uh, college students who took three months off and then we started working with different teams. So was you had was a, it like the real world where you're partying all the time? Actually, <laughs> I, got a, I was able to get out of the dorms real fast because the team that I was working with, it was a great family. The, the, the man, the guy, owner of the team, he had a lot of money, came from a wealthy family. Yeah. He had made and put together the team for his son who wanted to be a race car driver. Ah, oh, rich people have it all. That's the thing. And his son wasn't good. Mm. But the opportunity to be with them allowed me to learn a lot about open wheel racing on race cars and also work with TRD. But then they invited me for me to live with them for the three months at their, at their mansion. So I was like, I'm out of here. These dorms suck. I'm gone. Wait, wait, um, you got out of the barracks and into the mansion with How this, with this family. And they treated me like I was, uh, like I was another son. What do you think the difference was between you and the other nerds? The other nerds had a rough, <laughs> uh, because Tell me, but why did they pick you? They, <laughs> I don't know. That just landed with this team and it just <laughs> happened that way. I got lucky. I got lucky. The other, the, other, the other nerds had a rough. 
<laughs> because if you're a nerd in college, you're not going to be partying out there all night long. You're relying on other people to do the partying for you. So these guys were, you know, working hard all day and then they were not doing much and they were bored out of their minds. And I had the opportunity to, to live with this family as part of their, as part of their family for three months. This and is before the internet was awesome, right? This oh, absolutely. <laughs> this was, uh, 94, 95. <laughs> yeah. Before the internet was actually super awesome. This is when even AOL was lame. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we were still using dial up back then. Yeah. I'll go way back with this. <laughs> what is this, a fax? What's happening? <laughs> yep. Fax machines and dial up uh, internet connection. Absolutely. I know all about it. I know about pagers. I know all of that stuff. I had a pager. <laughs> That's exciting. Okay. So you got to live with the rich people in the mansion. Mm hmm. Yeah. Because they wanted to talk about suspension all day? or Because they just uh, took a liking to me. They yeah. just felt like uh, this this young college student who was kind of broke, you know, and, and took this internship just out of the blue, went to Georgia for three months. Let's help him out. I probably saw uh, your Volkswagen. No, I had to leave the Volkswagen behind. We had, we had to rely on the transportation from the hook, from the, from not the hotel, but from the dorm to the racetrack uh, for three months. And it was kind of annoying. So, uh, but yeah, it was, it was, it was a great experience. They were great internship. And a lot of us started the same way, yeah. being an intern somewhere else. I, I, I have wiped floors and clean bathrooms and, you know, changed tires. And mm -hmm. I had to do it all just to get my feet uh, into, into motorsports. Was that right after your degree? Did you? That was while working on my degree. Oh, yeah. so I didn't get my degree until right? yeah, I didn't get my degree until ninety nine. This is a summer internship. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. So summertime, mm. it's hot, but back it's hot in Georgia yeah. and humid. It's Can't like wear underwear down there. <laughs> <laughs> back, back then, what was kind of going through your mind uh, looking at that article? And then, did you probably tell your parents at the time? Were you living at home? I was living at home. I was living with my mom, and I told her about it, and she's like, "You out of your mind? Uh, yeah, you're not doing motorsports." I said, "Yes, I am." Uh, I'm, I'm going to go pursue this because the, in her mind, doing motorsports meant I was going to be driving. Uh, oh. I ended up driving anyway. I ended up driving race cars <laughs> and testing for teams. And, and then when people say, "Well, don't you get scared out of being, you know, out in a race car?" No, I've been on fire. I've been upside down in a what? race car. I've been upside down on fire in a race car. <laughs> I, I, I've experienced it all. So wait, if I've, you're upside down, is that a suspension problem? <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes driver error, <laughs> where where you, where you feel like you're Superman and you're doing everything just right, and your concentration lapses for a second, and next thing you know, you're flying upside down like wow. Ricky Bobby, you know, and and you go you go back and you're going, shoot, that was my that was my fault, I did it wrong, you know, I was too brave and I thought it was a full send when it was a quarter send, and now I'm upside down on fire. Mm. What do I do? You, know, you have to unbuckle. You have to get out of the window net. The usual stuff. Does the rest of the team uh, laugh at you, or are they? Oh, uh, absolutely. <laughs> oh, oh. If, if we are not talking at least about a serious incident for three hours later, as long as everybody's okay, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. And and while they're drinking and they're making jokes about, oh, how the heck did you roll over? <laughs> if we're not talking about that at the end of the race, you're not in a good team. <laughs> you want the guys to to make fun to make fun of you, and then at the next event when they do something wrong, you make fun of them. Yeah. So those are the those are the team experiences in motorsports that 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 everyone really enjoys because it is it is a team effort all the way and somebody's cruise up you're gonna hear about it for the next six months mm. just the way it works hey a lot of you forgot about turn 12 right <laughs> <laughs> it's a left it's a hard left you know sometimes you, you you think you have it and you get really brave or you're in a car doing a, a two and a half hour stint yeah after two hours of driving at, at the high level concentration like if you drive from here to california you take a break in two hours yeah you, you go used to restroom you're feeling okay at that high level of concentration of stress, 
people are passing you, you're passing them, you're watching for the car, you're looking at your fuel consumption, you're trying mm. to take care of your tires, and all that stuff. Your brain is doing a thousand calculations a minute. At the end of two and a half hours, you're tired. Yeah, yeah. You know, you want to eat, you want to use the restroom. You know, your 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 body. You know, sometimes yeah. I could lose up to four to five pounds of, of you know, yeah, uh, of water mm-hmm. when I'm wearing my suit in a hot summer day in a race car. Mm. And um, you know, so sometimes you make some dumb decisions because <laughs> mentally you're just drained. Mm. And you're just waiting to come in to get the next driver in so you sounds, can take. Sounds a break. like my relationship. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say it sounds After like two and a half hours. <laughs> All right, didn't last very long. Sounds like when I go to when I'm about to brush my teeth at night, if I'm tired, and then <laughs> you undo the toothpaste top and it falls, and you and after, I mean, so many days when I'm not tired, I don't drop the the top of the toothpaste thing. Then I start thinking like, is it only when I'm tired that I start dropping it? So, but I mean, I, I, that's such a mild story compared to cars. Just being tired, I could drop my toothpaste cap, but then and just frequently. It's it's enough where I think about it because I'm like, man, I'm, I'm I'm really that tired. I dropped it again. I really don't want to pick that up. <laughs> and at the end of the day is driving tired. And it could be on the freeway when you're taking a long trip, six oh, hours yeah. in, you're taking the family out for a nice road trip or whatever. Yeah. You're driving tired. Your decision making is not all there. And when you're in a race car at high speed and a lot of stuff is happening at the same time, oh, yeah, your brain has got to be there. So, um Okay, so you do an internship in Georgia. You go back to school and finish your mechanical engineering uh, electrical. degree. Electrical. Ele- electrical, okay. yes. You said micro? Uh, micro circuits was my specialty. Micro circuits. How's that? So is that like in a calculator or what's a micro circuit? Uh, micro circuits a- could be anything inside a, from a computer to inside an RC car, anything that's got some type of small encasing. Well, yeah. to, to a regular person, all, all circuits are small, right? Or you, so Not really. Like more uh, trend. You can be talking about uh, some of uh, my colleagues majored in, in uh, high power circuits. So this will be your distribution lines to your home, to a business, to a, you know. Oh, a, like a, giant a, electrical lines. Exactly. Mm. Giant transformers. Now you're dealing with uh, higher lines of transfer and, and more electricity and things like that. So within electrical engineering, just like mechanical and just like materials engineering, you have your specialty. And mine was microcircuits. Hey, so in in Back to the Future, when the DeLorean has to drive past the clock tower to catch the 1.21 gigawatts, <laughs> is that pretty realistic, or is there a lot of problems? <laughs> I can't even with, get a straight face. <laughs> no, I mean the car had good suspension, right? <laughs> the car had great suspension and it had great speed. And if you know the story of the DeLorean, like, why on earth would they pick a DeLorean for this movie? But it was a stroke of genius because it looks great. They could have picked a Lambo. They could have picked anything. They could have picked an old school Ferrari. They picked a DeLorean, and that caught everyone's attention. That is one of the most famous movie cars ever. Yeah. Mm. Because it was a DeLorean, for crying yeah. out loud. You know, no one had faith in this thing, you know, when it started. Yeah. You know, you know the story about it. And and to pick it for a movie and for it to be the Back to the Future machine, fantastic. Yep, yep. Yeah. <clears throat> okay, so you finish microcircuits. Right. So I graduated from there, and then I moved to Vegas. Yeah, I moved to Vegas in 99. Well, yeah, was that for a job, or you're just like? It was for a job. It was. Uh, like, I need more excitement than Miami. This town is busted. What's well, more exciting? Miami was just too crowded. Miami, okay. <laughs> I, I feel like I outgrew Miami because I couldn't get from A to B without having an hour in the car. Mm. And I had been coming to Vegas previously, you know, before I graduated for, you know, a couple of weeks and things like gambling? that. Gambling? Uh, no gambling. I don't gamble. Strip clubs? Uh, no strip clubs either. Uh, no drinking either. Wait, mm. what were you coming to Vegas for then? Just to hang out and have fun. I had an uncle living here. Okay. And, uh, Sounds and, like bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> I realize your your uh, work might be watching, so 
Oh, no, no, no. And anyone could be watching. <laughs> and everyone who knows me knows that I, I, I never had alcohol or anything like that. So I, and I don't party very much. Okay. I am I am that college nerd with with the glasses and <laughs> a pocket protector. I was that guy. I was that guy. Yeah, I had like different color pens and pencils and stuff. That was me. You know, that was that was my life. This one pens would occasionally leak. <laughs> yes. I, I don't think there's leaky pens. Anymore. And it had to be a white I... shirt, right? And it had to be big, big, big blue spot, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so I was that guy. And uh, but I was I enjoyed Vegas because back then it had a small town vibe mm-hmm. compared to South Florida, compared to Miami, where it's just so crowded. I'm like, one day I like to live in Vegas. Not for the okay. strip or the fun and the partying, because I enjoy that small town vibe. So, so I moved to Vegas yeah. to start my business in automotive, and I opened a shop back then. <clears throat> oh, you opened a race shop or what? Mm-hmm. I had a performance shop. Wow! I didn't. I didn't go straight to using my degree. Straight out of college, oh, you were just yeah. like, I need to open a race shop. I just, it was my dream. I always wanted to work on cars. That's crazy. And, and uh, I took this self-taught attitude of you know teaching myself how to work on cars plus my engineering degree, and then I started working on cars. Uh, professionally where I had in a shop and people would bring me their vehicles and I would mm-hmm. prepare, you know, race car bill engines and all kinds of stuff. Dude, population of Vegas back in 99, it was just over a million. Mm-hmm. Okay. We're, and, we're, and now is we're over 2 million now. Yeah. Big so difference. more than double. Yeah. We're well, the, double. the area where I used to live was West Cheyenne. Mm-hmm. And, uh, if you picture Cheyenne and Buffalo, for example, mm-hmm. Cheyenne and Cimarron by cliff shadow. Uh huh. Yeah. It was well. There was no cliff shadows back then. <laughs> yeah. Anything past Durango was like dirt, <laughs> yes. right? Mm. So now you see the, the growth, right, yeah. and, and the changes to this town. And now it's becoming that Miami is becoming that South Florida where it's just so crowded, mm-hmm. uh, where the two fifteen is not enough to get from A to B, uh, and there's always traffic, and it's just it's bound to happen. You know, it just happens to any major city. Okay, so any any uh, young man that likes cars mm-hmm. would love to dream to open a. A hot rod shop, right? Okay. Is that basically what you did? You're like, I rented a space, mm-hmm. got some lifts, yep. and you were tuning up cars. Absolutely. But there's two there's two aspects of that. Yeah, tell us more. So there's that young man out there who knows cars, who, who, who let's say, went to a ATI school or, or a school for automotive, for example. Mm-hmm. They got their, their, or CSN, for example. They got their, their, their degree in, in automotive or basics on automotive. Or can't you even do like ASE certified? Absolutely, like yeah. You can full do full mechanic. Of course, you can okay. do full mechanic. It's going to take some time. But if you really want to open a place for your own, you need to be mindful of two things. You're either a technician or you're a businessman. Yeah. A lot of folks out there, and I preach and teach this all the time because I see a lot of shops fail. Mm. They're great technicians, but they don't know how to run a business. Mm. So what happens is that they, they get the space, they open up a shop, and they fail because they're great at working on cars, but they don't know how to maintain a business. Right. Or- Gotta pay them bills. Or they are the business-minded guy who can't turn a wrench for their life. They think they can, <laughs> but they can't turn a, a wrench to, to save their lives. So they, folks, young men who want to open a shop because they feel like this is my profession, this is my career, they need to understand those two things about having your own place. You yeah. need to be business-minded and understand the back end of the business before you open up. Yeah, you can be a great technician and you know your stuff and you can fix cars. Doesn't automatically mean that you are gonna be a great businessman. You're gonna keep this Which business we're, afloat. We're stereotyping the gender because it's, it's literally true. It's mostly dudes that are into cars. Mostly of course. dudes that are into of course. being a mechanic. It's, of course, and they believe you know, that this is their future. Yes. And they're gonna open up a shop with you know 25 bays and they're gonna be rich. Yeah. When I was teaching uh, automotive intro at CSN, First thing I will tell my students, you're not here for money. If you're here for money, leave. <laughs> this was my introduction to their class. Hey, how many women in your class in general? 
at least half of the class was women, and I graduated more women than men. What? They are the best students in automotive. Why aren't we seeing Hands more? Down, how come we I, don't see female mechanics then? Because they take more managerial jobs when they go to the to uh, to shops because owners and managers feel that they're more comfortable there, and there's still that stereotype. But I graduated more girls, more women, uh, in basics wow. of automotive at the college than men. Dude, if you had a bunch of chicks running a hot rod shop or even a regular repair shop, you'd be a hit. Well, there you go. You got a business idea right there. Make it, you know, <laughs> let it roll. Let it yeah. roll. Uh, and, and that was it, is that attention to detail, uh, that, that dedication, um, and that observation that women have, that some guys come in and they're like, ah, I'm a guy, I have no cars. Come on, I got this. And they will fail my class. But I will always start with that. If you're here for money, leave. The automotive profession and becoming a mechanic or an automotive technician. It will never make you feel too rich, ever. You have to be a strong business mind. You have to know what you're doing. But at the end of the day, you'll never be rich. You can mm -hmm. enjoy what you do and have a comfortable living, but you're not going to be a millionaire out of this. What if you're a service writer at a dealership? It depends because a lot of dealerships <laughs> work on commission, obviously. Yeah. Um, the way I used to deal with service writers when I was a technician in, um, at dealerships uh, was, you know, send me some work, you get a little kickback. Any technician will tell you that. That relationship with your service writer is critical. Mm. Otherwise, you're gonna get oil changes <laughs> and brake jobs. Mm. If you want the engine jobs, the difficult dashboard work, and you want you know more hourly paying work, you and the service writers have to be like this. It's oh, like a, a whole economy it, back there. It's, it's, like a, it's like a stripper and a bouncer. Whoa, what are you talking about now? <laughs> right, right? Don't mm -hmm, they have to get mm -hmm. some kickbacks to the front door person, to the bouncers, to the bar people, right? Mm -hmm. Same concept. There's always a back economy to everything. And automotive is no different. Mm. Dealerships are crooked. What? Yes, they are. The Except BMW. BMWs are good. <laughs> no, any dealership works the same way. <laughs> because any dealership works on the same backbone of commissions for technicians, commissions yeah. for salespeople, commissions for service writers and everyone is trying to get their best out of it, right? Yeah. And uh, you have to be smart about it. Otherwise, you're gonna starve to death. Yeah. The automotive industry is brutal. Any dealership that you go into is looking to starve you. It's up to you not to starve. It's up to you to have a wrench on one hand and a sandwich on the other. You don't take lunch breaks, you don't take vacations. You wanna eat well, you don't do that. So, I mean, that is a stereotype that it's hard to find an honest mechanic, right? Absolutely. So It's, it's hard to find an honest mechanic. Gotcha. Yeah, because everyone is out for, for themselves, especially dealerships. Is your shop still open? No, I shut it down and I retired from turning wrenches in 2016. Okay. After so doing it for 20 years. Wait, was, so did you literally finish college and said, I'm going to start a shop? Or was, mm -hmm. Are we missing yeah, I put detail? I put the degree on the wall and I just, I want to turn wrenches. Yeah. It sounds like a financially challenging thing to do out of college. So how did you manage that? Um, I had some money saved up uh, from jobs that I had here and there. And... Um, Oh, since you didn't party much, so you saved a lot of money. You see yeah. that? Okay. And okay. I drove a 69 Volkswagen Beetle. I mean, how, that yayo yo was expensive in Miami. <laughs> the what? The yayo. How expensive is a Volkswagen Beetle, really? You know, uh, some of my buddies, you know, uh, they took uh, jobs with a local power company, you know, like MB Energy over uh -huh. there. And they started buying expensive cars. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I didn't. I just had a regular commuter car and I saved my money to get my business rolling. And the other thing that I did that I always coach my students to do is, don't get into a lot of debt right off the start. Mm -hmm. If you're gonna have equipment in your shop, own it. Don't owe anybody for it, even down to your tools. Uh, a lot of these guys come out of college, uh, they're young, yeah. they're, they're very impressionable, and um, they buy a lot of tools out of college, and these tool companies love it. 
mm. because they get him into ten, twenty thousand dollar debt right away, right mm. out of college, and then they're going, "Oh, when yeah. am I going to pay this?" You know, yeah. you know, making five, six bucks an hour post commission, mm. and it's a brutal business. Automotive is not easy. It's so, are if you're an auto shop, are Snap-on tools worth it? Is it the way to go? Or what's oh, absolutely, yeah, you're paying for the quality. Okay, yeah. uh, and there's some other tools out there that are really good quality as well, um, and it's all about your tools and your equipment. If I go to my doctor and he's using some subgrade, you know, mm. stethoscope and things like that, I mean, not come back to the guy. You know, same thing with the automotive guy, uh, your your technician. He's a doctor. He's your vehicle's doctor, mm. and you want him to be using the most calibrated, most up to date, most reliable tools out there. Mm-hmm. It's what you work with, what what you put in your hands to work with. Yeah. So, do you think by chance? Um, so was that you said nine? Was that ninety nine? Or when you opened the shop? 99, correct. 99. Mm-hmm. By chance, is the if you think about today trying to open a shop, just mm-hmm. um, think about so, like maybe a college student opening a shop mm-hmm. today, a, a mechanic shop. Uh-huh. Do you think what you had then is so different than what they would be encountering now? Absolutely. Uh, not only economy-wise, not only the industry itself, but the automotive uh, part of it itself. Cars have evolved and changed so much over the years um, where we always like to say that we do more schooling than actual doctors. Mm. So look at the human body and how it has evolved, right? Yeah. Kind of, things kind of remain pretty much the uh, same, right? Okay. Yeah. You have kind of the same organs and yeah. you yeah. have, you know, you may have a virus here and there pop <laughs> up, right? <laughs> and automotive, things are evolving by the second. Mm. So a technician back in 99 had different challenges as far as that goes. And also business-wise and economy-wise than a technician who's fresh out of college right now wants to open a shop, they'll have a more difficult time because they need to be way more educated than someone back in 99 mm. because of how the automotive industry and the design of the automobile has, has evolved. Mm. Somebody's yeah. gonna roll in with a hybrid car. Yeah, yeah. Not only that, somebody rolls in into with uh, you know a Honda Civic and you're like, yeah, I can fix that. Mm-hmm. Well, my problem is my blind spot monitor is not working or my security camera is not working or my uplink whatever is not working. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, I don't know how to fix that. I just know how to do brakes. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. That technician is going to starve. Mm. A technician who can't diagnose a car with a mechanical problem or doesn't know electrical will starve. Mm. So that background in electrical that I had from college, that yeah. degree, allowed me to work on cars uh, because they keep getting more and more. Electron- hey, do you, hey, do you know a good uh, auto electric shop in Vegas? Auto electric shop in Vegas depends on what vehicle, what kind of vehicle you drive. Say 2010 Ford Raptor. Uh, dealership. Go to the dealership. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. Go to the dealership, especially for a Raptor. Yeah. You just told me a dealer's a ripoff. And that's the thing. The more advanced vehicles get, guess what? You are more tied to the dealership. No, it's just an F-150 you, with a giant suspension. You are tied to the dealership. <laughs> because a lot of small <laughs> shops or, or private-only shops, unless they're recently former Ford technicians who went on their own, they are going to be able to help you. But some George Mill who has been out of the dealership, dealership game for at least five, six years, mm. they have no idea what's going on in these new systems. Mm. So the more cars evolve, the more we are married to dealerships mm. because of the technology that is very manufacturer specific. Just a thought. Maybe I wonder if there's a Raptor group in Vegas and then kind of like how the S2000 had. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah there's a Raptor group in Vegas. Oh, yeah. So yeah, it's all shit talking, though. Uh, well, I'm hopefully, <laughs> get some recommendations there too. I like, mean, for, for and shop, then they right? call you poor <laughs> for uh, trying to save money. <laughs> even, well, even in the S two thousand group, there was some uh, uh, 
grow, um, homegrown mechanics or whatever the mechanics that worked at home or whatnot mm-hmm. that yeah. that knew the S two thousand real well. Mm-hmm. So that was kind yeah. of really really cool to have. Right. Maybe the, hopefully the Raptor Group has one. And that's too. how I gained a lot of my clients too was through these forums and things like that. It's yeah. like, hey, I took my S two thousand to this guy. He was really good. Mm-hmm. You should take it too. Never advertised. Never yeah. did anything to to kind of promote the business. The business kind of rolled in on its own, but because nice. it was word of mouth. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So that was my specialty: Japanese imports. I did all uh-huh. Toyota, Nissan, Mitsubishi, Honda. Did you watch the Fast and Furious movie and it inspired you? or No, I did, and it made me sad. <laughs> <laughs> it, it just broke my heart. When the first one came out, I'm going, why am I even at the theater? Uh, and it was I that time. Money back. <laughs> <laughs> and if you guys are familiar with the Texas Station Casino on the north side of town, yeah. on, on Rancho, Rancho. Rancho, right? Yeah. Um, they have a parking garage. Yeah, That's where I went to watch the movie back then when it came out. And every ricer was parked in the parking garage when the movie <laughs> let out. It was just like a symphony of rice coming down, <laughs> coming down the parking garage, and was because like, everyone thought they were in the movie. That's right. Because everyone with a fart can exhaust felt like, oh, this is me right here. You can't drift when you're in a traffic jam. And I am walking out of the movie theater going, why did they make this movie? This is, this is so bad. This is going to be bad for business. And it actually made it better. It actually improved business. Huh. Uh, because people wanted what they saw in the movie. And they're thinking, yeah, I want those underglow lights. And I'm going, no, I don't install those. Sorry, you got to go somewhere else. Go, oh, but uh, how about uh, you know the uh, the flames that are coming out with the yeah, colors yeah, 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 of yeah, the yeah. exhaust? <laughs> no, I don't do those. This is a serious race shop. Sorry, you got to go somewhere else. You know, it, it, it came down to that. You know? hmm. Did you work on any skylines? Uh, once or twice. Yeah, I didn't work on a lot of those. Yeah. Was the Eclipse a tank? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Too heavy? <laughs> There was a joke uh, out of the dealership when I worked for Mitsubishi was that um, the 3000 GT VR4 was a better car than mm. the Eclipse uh, uh, GST or whatever it was back then. With yeah. The big turbo. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. And it actually was better. It was a better design car. It was way ahead of its time. Mm. So I got into, when I started working on cars, I came into that early 90s Japanese car that was like the dream of everyone to have because yeah. they were design ahead of their time. And that's what got me into Japanese car work was I love the design. I love the simplicity of each car of those early Honda Civics and those early Toyota Corollas. Uh, that, that's what got me into it. Not like the, the Supra? I love the Supra. Built a ton of those. <laughs> nice. uh, and what's funny is I just ran into one of my old Supra customers yesterday. Yeah. And uh, back in the day, we were talking about how you know, I put together an engine for him that made 1,100 horsepower. And... To the super community, like the Raptor community and the S2000 yeah. community, it's like, oh, he's poor. He doesn't have enough horsepower. Vegas is spoiled that way. Yeah. If you own a Supra here in Vegas, an MK4, you have to make 12, 1300 horsepower, mm. right? That's insanity. Exactly. So I built him an 1100 horsepower engine back in the day, and then he had a ton of fun with it. Great time. Good friend of mine. He wanted to go to a car show in California mm-hmm. and uh, Long Beach. So... We put the car in the trailer, we went to a car show, and we had his dyno sheet, and we had his numbers and information. It was a Toyota-only car show. And people were walking up in California saying, a thousand horsepower, mm. this is amazing. Mm. How are you able to accomplish this? we never seen, hey, so-and-so, this car makes a thousand. How yeah. is that possible? And for us, it was like, oh, we're not making enough at 1100. <laughs> 1100 is not enough for Vegas, but you guys seem to be impressed. Okay, sure, let's go with it. Different cultures, different places. Mm. What they have accustomed to to seeing out there and here in Vegas, you're not making twelve, thirteen. You're like, eh, you're a regular is, guy. Is that a supercharged V6 on nitrous or what's the? Uh... <laughs> no, big giant turbo. Okay, thirty uh, something <laughs> pounds of boost. Nice. Uh, yeah. 
So big boost, uh, E85 type of stuff. Yeah. What, what's your feeling about LS swaps? I like them in certain vehicles. Okay. Uh, I, I think they fit well in certain cars. Uh, I like them a lot and on the Nissan 240s. Uh, mm. I think they just fit well. They work really well. Mm. Um, some people take them to the extreme. I'm like, why do you put an LS in that <laughs> thing? What are you thinking? Uh, but I like LS swaps. Um, it goes back to the origins of racing. Put a big motor in a little car. Yeah. Right? This is all so we can go fast, right? Yeah. So it has to change no matter if it's an import or a domestic. At the end of the day, you want to put a big motor in a little car to go fast. And uh, that's why the LS is so appealing because it's cheap. And you can put some power behind it in, in a lightweight vehicle. So motorsports and racing and enthusiasts haven't changed. Our faces just changed a little bit <laughs> and, and, our, and our cars changed a little bit. So when people are like, oh, I'm, a, I'm an import guy, those domestic guys suck. You're the same people. Sorry. Yeah, yep. So it's all power to weight. Putting power to the, weight at the end of the day. Yeah. Putting the power on the ground. And that's my job. <laughs> There's a lot of guys out there building engines and making a ton of power on these lightweight cars. They don't know how to put it to the ground. Mm. And that's what drove me to suspension because there was too many of the other and not enough of the suspension guys who can take that thousand horsepower car and actually make it stick on the track, especially yeah. going around a corner on a road course. That's why it drew me to suspension work. So, so if you're, so you're running a shop back in 1999. That's when I started. Where Vegas. does the journey go? Cause today you're a suspension engineer for a BMW race team. Well, the journey was to, to turn wrenches as long as I could. And I yeah. wanted to do it for at least 20 years. Uh, and Oh, check. Yeah. 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 And, and that was a goal that I set when I was 18. Okay. I said, I'm going to get my degree. I'm going to hang it on the wall and I'm going to turn wrenches cause I really love it. I'm going to go racing get some experience in, in, the, in the sport, and then I'm gonna take that degree off the wall and I'm gonna put it to good use. And my health was good enough for me to retire in 2016 um, at age 40. Uh, I was able to put my body through all the stresses of owning a shop and, and turning wrenches, which is, which is brutal uh, um, physically. Well, your knuckles look okay. I wore gloves. <laughs> uh, and, and my hands don't look like a technician's hands because for 20 years I wore gloves. Nice. And I wore white surgical gloves. Oh. And that's where the nickname came from, Dr. E. Mm. Ah. Because I always wore white gloves when I worked on cars. And thankfully my hands look pretty decent these days. Nice. Yeah. That's where the nickname came from. Mm. I, I have a stack of white surgical gloves at home. For, for our listening audience, he has beautiful hands. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. Thank <laughs> you. Hand thank model. you. Um, and, and, it's, and it was all about taking care of myself and taking care of my body. I did some dumb stuff. Don't get me wrong. Uh, <laughs> under a car, you know, upside down stuff. Upside down stuff, and and <laughs> when working under a car, I knocked myself out several times by hitting my head on the lift. Mm. Oh, uh, wow. oh yeah, yeah. And and it is all part of the job, but it was also surviving, and and getting to that goal of okay, after twenty years, I'm going to retire of this automotive stuff, and I'm going to move on to behind the desk with a computer, mm. looking at you know data and information, and putting that degree to good use. So so far, everything has worked out. Wow, not. So, <laughs> Wait, so, you, so you closed up your shop and then you just go apply for an engineering job or what's I already the, had the jobs. Okay. So I was working that side by side with my own business. So back then I had the engine, uh, the uh, job with, uh, Honda performance development that I already started then through connections through, you know, that networking that is a motorsports. Then I landed the job at BMW. Mm, um, wow. yeah, and it is all about who, you know, but I was running that parallel to my shop. Was it like you were doing 40 hours a week at your shop and then 20 hours a week with <laughs> 40 hours a week on my shop. <laughs> <laughs> 189 hours. I was, work, I was working about 17 hours a day. Oh, seven, geez. seven days a week. Jeez. Uh, because my vision was 
I'm going to work on the cars. I'm going to run the business. I want you to come in and talk to me. I want you to know that I'm the one who turned the wrench. Yeah, I had some assistants and some helpers. Uh, right. You know, depending on some projects, it, it was backed up. I will bring somebody to help. But at the end of the day, I wanted that person, that client, to come in and talk to me about their concern, their problem. Mm. I was the technician, service writer, shop owner. I wanted to have that relationship with oh, my client. So you give yourself the kickback. Well, yeah, I, I, I pay myself <laughs> under the table. Go figure. <laughs> but it, it was that that relationship that I feel that I, that I that idea that I had of how to run that business that made the business successful for so long was, um, and it changed names a few times and had to move a few times different locations because I, I grew at some point. Um, but it was that relationship. You came and it was more personal. It wasn't like talking to the service writer and hoping that the service writer told exactly the right information mm. and, and transfer that over to the technician. No, I'm your guy. Yeah. You come and you shake my hand and you talk to me and I'm delivering your car back to, back nice. to you. So that was the whole idea behind the business and that was a business structure. And I think that's what made it so successful for so long uh, because it was me. I, I did everything. Yeah, it was, <laughs> it was hard, but I did it all. How did you manage to do that with the, uh, was it, Toyota or Honda? Or was Honda? Uh, Honda, okay. Honda Performance Development. There's a lot of weekend travel. Uh, a lot yeah. of, you know, leaving at, you know, four or five in the afternoon, you know, heading to Florida, heading to Georgia, heading to Texas, and Damn. coming right back wow. in the next day. So, but it was the, the commitment that I put behind it. It's like, this is what I want to do because I knew holding on to that Honda job or that Toyota job before that was going to roll into something else. And it sure, mm. it sure did. It's all about the mm. connections you have. Like any type of work that you have, it's all about who you know. How um, long ago did that? Um, uh, employment with Honda start. What what year was that? That started in 2014, and it rolled over oh. all the way to about 2017. So when was when in your mind did you kind of have a game plan that you you're gonna close the shop mm -hmm. and you needed to have a backup plan? What what year was that around when you thought that of that? was? Um, I like to say 2010 2011, when okay. I knew where where I was physically when I knew that the 20 year mark was coming and I was already there and you know, where I knew where <laughs> I wanted to do too many concussions under the <laughs> too lip. many concussions on their lip, <laughs> too many rollovers under, you know, uh, you know and, and on fire in a car and, and, and you start thinking, okay, what's next? What's my next move? Wow. And having that job parallel to my, to me owning a shop was the key to always stay in the industry. And uh, it, yeah, it rolled over to the next job and the next job and the next job. And that's how I was able to, to do it without stopping. All right, young people, if you want to be successful, you have to outwork Eladio. Oh, geez. <laughs> 17 hours a day running the shop. There's, there's, there's no quit if you really want to make it in this business. And to me, in any business, you, you can't take a break. Are you, um, and if, if I'm going to just flag in case you don't want to answer this question. Okay, sure. Um, did you ever stab anybody in the back? <laughs> <laughs> did you put someone under the lift and then drop it? Whose um, neck did you step on to get ahead? <laughs> wait, I'm about to forget the question. Sorry, um, sorry. <laughs> When I'm, I'm assuming financially from, from the shop, you were looking at how, if you could retire. So, or mm -hmm. was that, kind of, are you at a point where you can not work for the rest of your life? Yeah. And is that a, do, do you feel like your passion is so much into cars that you will never stop? So you, you kind of, was that 2000, you said 2011 when you're thinking about mm -hmm. that. So was that right. part of the equation too? Like, you knew, even though you retired, right. or that you could retire mm -hmm. at 2016, right. your plan was to still stay in. Like that was yes, the plan was always to never stop. Wow, that plan was to stop wrenching for a living, to actually stop getting my hands dirty, physical, physical uh, work in 2016. That was the plan. That was the plan to stop there when I turned 40. 
and because um, I knew my body was decaying. Uh, but also, he's point, wasting a lot of gloves. <laughs> yeah, and gloves are not cheap, um, especially those white surgical ones. Um, so that was the plan. And and just like at 18 years old, I had that plan. I had also had the plan to retire at 40 and then continue in the industry, but to never quit. But at the same time, have this parallel uh, life to where I was putting money away to towards early retirement. Again, these are plans that I made when I was 18. So wow. my target early retirement is 55. So uh, financially, you can say that's no problem. Uh, financially, 55 has always been my target mm. to say I can I can completely retire from anything that I do in life and I can go on a long vacation somewhere. I had stupid plans when I was 18. <laughs> <laughs> See, I was that nerd with the pocket protector and my glasses, you know, in class thinking, hmm, I want to retire Plans 55. <laughs> how, how much money do I need to put away every month, every year, you know? Wow. And, and business wasn't always great uh, in the automotive world. We hit a recession in 2008, 2009. Yeah. I survived that mm. because business, even though it was slow, I had a strong foundation. Hummer did not survive. No. no. Saturn <laughs> and Pontiac did not Saturn survive. So all these major manufacturers, all these major companies, and, and all these major uh, corporations went under. And here's this little shop in Vegas <laughs> on, on the, a ranch on Decatur nice. that survived all of that. But to me, the goal was to have a strong customer base and never try to outgrow myself. The, the biggest thing that I see out there in automotive shops, especially when they just start, is the desire to grow too fast mm. because they're looking at, oh my gosh, I have these, these many clients. I need to, to have a bigger space. No, make your space the most efficient space. Keep it small, keep it manageable. Then again, it's that business mind that a lot of technicians do not have. They open a shop because they can. They think they can wrench, and they might be great technicians. They're not business minded, hey, and that's seen, where they fail. Have you seen that Firestone over on uh, Spring Mountain? Firestone, it's a Firestone mechanic shop. Uh, it was. It's on Spring Mountain and Valley View. Is it still there? Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I worked. I worked out of that one too. They're out of business. Is that a business? Yeah, but it's got. They got like twelve bays or something, right? Right, is and it? and it's the one that that goes kind of an L shape. Yeah, yeah. I worked out of that one too when I worked Man, for Firestone. I fantasize yeah. about. Well, what happened is that the land was sold. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Firestone owned the land. So I don't know if they're already closed or what happened, but um, when I was still working for them, the land sold to a group of Chinese investors oh. because they were buying the entire block, Spring Mountain and Valley. Oh, they're going to make some Chinese stuff there in Chinatown. And the goal was to put a high-rise building there. Yeah. So Firestone sold the land to them. Yeah. The Ted Wien's company, uh, who was owned by Ted and Ted Sr., um, they sold that land because they owned that land. Mm. And they got a ton of money for it. Yeah. But I, I worked out of that one. I managed the one on Rainbow and Alta. I managed the one on Decatur and oh. Rancho for a little bit. And when the one on Fort Apache and 215 opened, I was the shop manager for that one when they first opened. Okay. Yeah. So I work for that company too. I've been around. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm here, there, sounds, and everywhere. Sounds like you're unstable, man. <laughs> you know, uh, not a lot of sleep. And, 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 uh, working four jobs. And just, and just loving any, throughout the year, at any point, of the year, I'm usually, um, you know, juggling three, four jobs. Wow. And I haven't, I haven't even counted gummy grip. You chase women at all or what's the, uh, no, I didn't do the chasing. I'm tired of that. I, I, <laughs> I surrendered. I became, a, <laughs> I became a monk. It's just, <laughs> Vegas is hard, man. Vegas is, is a tough, it's a tough town for women. And, uh, yeah, it's just, it's been, it's been rough. No, cool. just get some tattoos. I'm going to pass on that. I mean, it's, it's, it's cool. I'll, I'll keep doing what I'm doing and maybe, you know, someday I'll get back to it. But 
What was a gummy grip? What's that? Gummy grip is a local shop um, where the owner I knew for a very long time, he was my part supplier when I had my shop. And after I shut down, uh, he's like, hey, you know, I need a suspension tuning guy. You know, do you still want to do it? You still love it? I was like, yeah, I want to I want to wrench again just for fun, mm. not to put food in my belly or to pay my house bills. Mm. No, I just want to do it for fun. Wow. And he's like, come on down. <laughs> so I own all my equipment that I use there for suspension tuning. I own a, um, an alignment machine that is fully portable and uh, is all laser guided and stuff. Mm. So I brought all that over and we had this great relationship for a while. So. Yes, I said that I'm retired, but I still I still work. <laughs> I still I still work. I, I love what I do, and I hope that that remains until I'm 55 and I'm ready to give it up, because I I haven't been able to give it up because I still enjoy it and I still enjoy racing and and talking to my clients about car setup. 55 is when you can move into those golf communities, and I don't play golf, so I'm gonna have to work on that. <laughs> um, no, but golf carts have suspension. Talking to, <laughs> talking to a lot of my um, my coworkers in Germany, uh, you know, during this video conferencing calls when we're doing our design work, uh, they're like, move to Germany, marry a nice German girl and yeah, yeah. move over here. I'm like, I don't know about Germany. My German sucks, you know, and uh, but I can learn it, you know, just like I've been practicing a little bit, but it's, it's pretty hard. I think it's, mm. it's my Spanish uh, taking over my brain and then I can't pronounce the words in German. So <laughs> I, I'll, I'll keep going at it. I'll see what I can do about it. So your motivation or drive to work your own business 17 hours a day and then have all those side things. That's, mm -hmm. uh, that's, I want to say abnormal. Uh, that's going to be rare. That's most human, most people, most Americans won't want to do that. Um, where do you find your drive from? Is that your parents? What childhood trauma caused you? I, I think it comes from my mom and, uh, it was, it was a very strict household when I was a kid, you went to school, you learned something every day, you went to work, no BS. And, uh, you know, you were a good person overall. And um, that's what drove me. And um, hmm. is she still disappointed that you went into cars? She still is. And unfortunately, <laughs> she <laughs> <laughs> because she only saw the danger aspect of Fake it. Doctor. Uh, but uh, and, and unfortunately, unfortunately, she passed away very recently. Oh, and, I'm sorry uh, that, man. and but it was what she instilled in me it was that, that hard work, dedication, don't give up attitude. Go to work sick. You're sick. You go to work. You don't quit. Wow. Oh, my wow. back hurts. No, you go to work. Wow. You know, uh, I haven't, I, I didn't sleep well. No, you go to work. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, that's what I was taught since I was a child and always to learn something new, keep my studies up. And, and I think that's where that comes from. Wow. Uh, just nice. my, my, my upbringing. That's if you want to call it that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Gosh, I feel like a wuss compared to that. Like I, with I, my goal at work is to try to find an employer <laughs> that will let me work like about 30 hours a week. I don't want to work 40. I don't want to work 50 or 60. I gotcha. Um, gosh, I feel so entitled <laughs> when I say it like that. No, it's efficiency. I, that's how I, if, if I honestly in, in a, in a, how would I describe it? I view it as efficiency because I feel at least for, or for software engineering, for me, I know I'm not an engineer. No, no. You, but <laughs> in my eyes, you're an engineer. You have my seal of approval. I can only create code. There's certain really technically hard things to create okay. in the software world. If you're, if you're dealing with a database, the software, right. the front end, the back end, the, the, the requests from the employees. But anyway, it, it, to me, there's certain, that's what I call, uh, oh shit, it's been a while. Um, Deep coding. I forget the term. I called it before. Um, hard code. Um, it's 
It's when I'm in the code so deep that it's it's taxing my brain. There's so many variables that's in my brain that I have to juggle. It's it's literally like speed chess for three to four hours straight. And my brain, right about four hours for me personally, that's where I tap out. My brain is depleted of energy and everything. Right. I, I've met some other programmers, uh, Oscar, who's been on this podcast. Okay. That guy's a monster. He could program for like 14, 16 hours a day. If he I loves could, it. Yeah, I don't know how, like, I'll push myself. I'll I'll go on, a, if I have a project and I know the deadline is near, I'm able to push myself. Of course. So I'll hit eight hours one day, eight hours the next day, eight hours the next day, then 12 hours the next day. But I'm burnt. My brain is done. Mm-hmm. I need three, four, six days of recovery. Mm-hmm. But Oscar, that guy is a monster. He'll just, he'll go 12, 12, 12, 12, 12 hours. I just, and, and I'm the same way with drinking. <laughs> everyone is different in the way in the way to handle that stress or that their workload. Everyone can handle it differently. It's not that you're worse or you're different, or or, or that you're less than him. It's I just, am less than Oscar. But <laughs> it's, no, it's, I, just, I, it's just it's just how you handle it. Yeah and, yeah. and with with the amount of work that I do during the day, in my eyes, if it seems doable, I'm going to do it. Uh, if it seems like I have the energy, I'm, I'm, there's some days that I'm just like I can't get out of bed. Wait, yeah. how did you accomplish all this before there was all this inspirational talk on the internet? Like you don't have an Instagram account where self motivation <laughs> and no caffeine. You're not getting all Damn. these clever sayings and <laughs> no, just self motivation, uh, self drive, that that push that um, that you have just to do what you're supposed to do. That uh, no BS attitude. You you go do it and you take care of things. No slacking. Mm. Uh, so if I had a client that you know needed a car by the next day, I will stay overnight at my shop, but I will sleep there. I can tell you. I slept there a lot. Wow. I had a little refrigerator, a little mattress on the ground, and I would sleep at my shop just to get the work done. Wow. Just for that client to be satisfied and say, hey, thank you for, you know, for getting my car done. I really needed it for, to commute my kids to, to, to school. That was the satisfaction that I was looking for, and I didn't care how long I had to work for. Did, did any sexy women ever flirt with you to try to get you to perform mechanic oh, yeah, services? Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this is we, real? I had a large group of women. From, <laughs> now we're getting to the meat of this. This is what we have this conversation for. <laughs> I had a lot, large group of, of clients, uh, women, uh, who were working at a local strip club. I'm not going to say the name because I think some of them still work there. Uh, and then the word spread where, okay, hey, so this, guy, cheetahs. <laughs> this guy is very trustworthy. When you go there, he's not going to try to grope you or, or you know, ask you for your number. And then they all started coming in. Yeah. And I was like, why are all these women coming to my shop? And it was a trust that they had. Um, one of them told me one time, I said, you know why I like coming here? Because every other shop that I go to has posters of naked women on the wall. Mm. And you don't have but nice pictures on the wall. And I like coming here for that. <laughs> I don't mm. like sexualizing women as objects. <laughs> <laughs> so I had a large, large clientele from a local shop, and it was all word of mouth. It started oh. with one who just happened to land there one day because her brother told her to go there. And then she... Uh, referred her friends at work. Yeah. You know, from, from, uh, from, from, from uh, her friends. All right, at work. We got, we got the start of a movie guys. Yeah. <laughs> I think the, the, the most interesting part about all that was discovering things in the trunk of their cars. Oh, so anytime one will come in and say, Hey, you know, I need my car ready for a trip. So we do a trip ready checkups and, and prep, right? You put water in the battery, <laughs> check the tires, <laughs> check tire pressures. You know, you got to check the spare in the trunk, right? Don't forget the spare. Oh, that's right? why you're in the trunk. So okay. you go in the trunk and you go, ooh, that should have never seen that type of thing. Mm. You know, so I think that was the most Yeah, you got to tell us, bro. But they always pay cash, which was the <laughs> best part. <laughs> right? A business, a business who receives you know, cash is, is a dream come true. You know, They never want to use a debit card or credit card. Yes. They always brought cash. I was like, bring me your money. I don't care. Cash mm. is good. Cash is good. So uh, that was another advantage of having them there was uh, getting a cash payment for any job. 
What do strippers carry in their trunks? Dildos. This you can tell us. Uh, toys, uh, underwear, um, some interesting books, uh, things, <laughs> things like that. Yeah, yeah. So always sexy themed things. Yeah, yeah. They carry yeah. some strange stuff in the trunk too. And a lot of leftover food for some reason. I don't know why they just don't throw it away. Hmm. That's what I noticed the most. Leftover, like... Yeah, like like Roberto's, you know, <laughs> like Roberto's, you know, like, like like styrofoam <laughs> stuff inside a bag. It's like just throw it away. No, it will be in the trunk for some odd reason. Strange, huh. strange. Just, it's a oh. it's a wildlife. You never know. It's a wildlife. You don't know when you need Roberto's and you just want to throw <laughs> it in the trunk. You know, there's times at three a.m. where you're like, fuck. <laughs> yeah, you know, you, you you clock out of work at four a.m. and you got to have some Roberto's. Good thing know? I saved that burrito. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, the 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 trunk findings were always the most interesting, and, and the second part was the receiving payments in cash. Excuse me, miss. I have to check the junk in your trunk. <laughs> I'm very sorry. Yeah, I, I used to word it sort of that way. Yeah, too. Your headlights are operating. Very, very loyal clients, too. Very loyal. <laughs> they, uh, yeah, they were, you know, they stuck to, to their appointments. They were never late. Uh, I mean, solid, solid clientele. I heard they were all in college and raising kids. They're all, they're all in college. They're all trying to put themselves to college. <laughs> yeah. You know? yeah, absolutely. Coming engineers. Yeah, same old story. Yeah, it never changed. And Vegas was the town for that. Right? <laughs> and they were willing, to, uh, a lot of them, to go out of the way to go to that part yeah. of town where my shop was uh, at to, to mm. go to a place where they could trust and it was reliable. Mm. That's the difference in Vegas. It's not weird to be a stripper. No, not at all. It's just a regular professional. Yeah, that's like a, that's a normal else. job here. Yeah. Yeah. You can yeah. be an engineer and a stripper in the same day. That's, yeah. that's, <laughs> that's, that's Vegas for you. You have it all. Uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, that was uh, some Wait. interesting clients. There. Dude, if somebody would pay me to take my clothes off, I would. I'd be very happy to. <laughs> I don't know about that. I'll, I think I'll be like the DJ in the background, you know, just, just, playing, just playing the music. You wouldn't yeah. take clothes off? 700 bucks. You wouldn't do it? I'm going to pass on that thing. So I'm, I'm not. I'm not yeah. Sexy dancing? No, thanks. I can. Okay. <laughs> If it was like four hundred thousand a year, yeah, I'd take that. It adds up quick. It's uh, it's a lot. It's a dick load of money. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. That's the wrong term. That's, yeah, that's <laughs> a, but I, I see what you did there. Well done. That's, that's, a, that's, that's the place there. <laughs> it's um. So yeah, I did, I did have a lot of uh, different clientele, all levels too. I can have one of them waiting in the lobby one day, and one of the doctors from the hospital down the street will come in and leave their vehicle and drop off, or you know, your regular soccer moms will come in too, and. You, know, you want to know what doctors have in the trunk? <laughs> Construction <laughs> workers. I mean, I body met, parts. <laughs> body, I met so many interesting people and, and people from all walks of life throughout all those years here working in Vegas, and uh, met you and uh, and and that was pretty fun. That was very rewarding to meet yeah. people from all aspects of life. When you think back on your career, what do you think are some key moments of decisions? Either decisions that you made that pushed you forward into your career, like like taking, um, was that Toyota's internship? Do you think that was kind of a crucial change? Absolutely. If, if I would have walked by that sign that was on that corkboard or that advertisement thing or, or that, hey, come work for us, do this internship here, I don't think I'd be where I'd be today. Prior, so prior, prior to that moment, were you just thinking electrical engineering? Right. And you had no idea thinking about cars or was, were you I was, already? I was thinking about cars, but not at that level. Uh, to where I can work for a race team. I can work for a major manufacturer. I wasn't thinking about it yet. And uh, that opened my, my eyes and the doors to a lot of things. Uh, so if I would have passed that up, yeah, I, I think things would have gone differently. What do you, uh, so after that, what are some other key moments? Uh, was it, op I guess opening your shop was a big moment opening probably. Opening the shop and finding a way to stay afloat, that was, that was huge. Um, Did it have a cool Japanese name? No, not really. I took the I took the letter the letter H and the number one from a series that we used to compete in. Uh, 
It was uh, uh, class was called H one. Okay. Uh, because it was a Honda one class yeah. and uh, NASA Pro Racing, uh, and then I took that and I called it H one Performance. No calling the Japanese names. No, no funny stuff. Um, so that's Not what Godzilla I called it. cars. What was that? Not Godzilla cars. Not Godzilla cars. No, no, no baby Godzilla <laughs> or anything like that. Um, and and that was a, a critical point came where I wanted to expand. I wanted to grow. I wanted to add separate things to the business, which was doing well. And the cool thing back there, back then, when I was making this particular decision was having a diner in your shop where you can you know put cars on there and test horsepower and things like that and tune mm-hmm. cars. It was either making that that commitment and, and spending that money or bringing in professional alignment equipment for suspension tuning. So choosing the investments that will elevate your shops. I went the alignment route. Yeah. And I still own the machine to this day because mm-hmm. it was a prototype that I'm not going to say the name of the manufacturer and the developer. It was a prototype that was out there and I was the first one who bought it in Vegas. Wow. Mm-hmm. I took that risk instead of going the diner route, which is the most popular route. And that would have been a failure because it would have been a $400,000 investment that would have gone down the drain. Mm. This other machine was cheaper and it was paid for within a year. So better business. Mm. The rate of return on that investment. Wow. And that pushed the business forward. Is it a different dyno for front wheel cars than rear wheel drive or do you just turn the car around? No, it's, uh, you can turn the car around and then you also have the all wheel drive machines Ah. uh, that you can set up for just rear, just for front. Um, So yeah, it depends on, on the manufacturer of the machine. Uh, and also, also there's accuracy of things that go with it. You also have machines that take up a lot of space. Uh, then you have, you know, machines from like Dynapack that are just small pods that take up less space. So all the things that as a business owner, you got to look at is like, can I put this in my shop? Is this going to be profitable enough for me to pay it back? Mm. Because I was still that mentality that I don't want to owe anyone any money. I want to yeah. own my own equipment. I don't want to close the shop and still have to pay for things that I never owned. And when I closed, I owned everything. So I, I didn't owe anybody. So in the cartooner world, there's a, a trend called stance. Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> Where you tilt your wheels. I just got this itch in the back of my neck. <laughs> I was, based on everything we've, we've talked about so far, uh-huh. is this an abomination? Is this the worst thing that ever happened to automobiles? I will not call it an abomination because <laughs> at the end of the day, everyone has their liking. For, for our listeners, this is where you, you tilt your wheels at some impossible angle, so it's not useful to drive on, but it looks like your wheels are tilted up on the side. It's a wacky. Uh, it's a wacky deal, and it's a trend, just yeah. like anything else. Just like putting little curtains on a VIP car, yeah, and or those long, you know, uh, stick handles uh, with a little fish in the middle. You know, the clear looking ones. Uh, it's all a trend. Yeah, and I'm not going to knock it. I'm not going to say it's an abomination. It's what you like at the time. Put it on your but car. It's against everything you do. Of course, because it, 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 it has nothing to do with function and performance. And people know they don't call me for that. They have a stance vehicle, and, and the owner of the shop, a gummy grip, can tell you this. When it's a stance car, we're like, no, nah, you got you to go somewhere else. Uh, but I because, want the corner really well. Because a lot of you knows that he's not going to touch that. So uh, if it's not function or performance, you need to go somewhere else. So, But I will never say, oh, that looks terrible, or that's a horrible trend. It's what you like at the time. Go for it. Do your thing. Has anybody tried making a rim and a wheel yet that are not cylindrical? Like where you have like kind of a conical? That would allow you to roll straight. I, I'm not aware of that. <laughs> you might be onto something there. I don't know anything about it. But um, yeah, there's, there's all kinds of trends. And you'll see it in the Japanese import market tuner world where we all went to some trends, right? Uh, yeah. I've, seen, I've seen almost all of them, you know. 
where the cars went really low and then they went up a little bit and then they were low again. Uh, they had the big flares or body kits. Oh, those were horrible. You know, uh, graphics, you know, uh, again, when, Fast and when, Furious pushed that. When you, when you hang a uh, stuffed animal from the, uh, from the bumper? Is that uh, stuffed animal from the bumper. Is there a meaning um, to that or is it just cute? Not that I know of. Okay. I don't know. It, and it's all, it's all trends out there that... that is the uh, the the origins of stance? I, I don't know. Correct me if I'm wrong. If you guys happen to know, it's so with uh, drifting. Often the camber you want uh, is that ne- negative camber. Uh, you want you you want more negative in the front. Yes. So then, I I thought I'm not sure if I heard this correctly. So that started where with drifting, where you you want that camber. So then with stance, they just took it to the extreme. Well, with stance and the way I understood it and the way it started was trying to stuff as much wheel and tire under a car to the point where you couldn't really fit it with the tire standing up straight. Mm. So you had to tuck it underneath and you had to stance it or tilt the tire in for it to fit under the body of the car. So the way it was it was uh, taught to me or, or the way I learned it was, it really wasn't about drifting. It was about mm. stuffing as much wheel and tire under a car and running it so low to the point where the car <laughs> could not sit over the wheel and tire. Normally, you have to tuck it in just to clear it. <laughs> oh, I, so, thought, I thought it was because in the old days, like the cheap way to lower your car would be to chop a couple of uh, oh, coils yeah, off a couple your coils. I, I did that too. <laughs> I, I came from that generation. But in effect, doesn't that kind of sit you lower and tilt your wheels in? Correct. Yeah. So anytime anytime you change the right height of a car, you're going to change the geometry of the car and yeah. the way the tire sits on the ground. So that's what we come in as chassis suspension tuners to make that correction, right? Yeah. But when you take it to the extreme like that, some of these stance cars, there is no way in heck I'm going to be able to help you with it. You're on your own, mm. you know, and then you, you have that bad tire wear and you're buying tires every three months. And But it's all about the trends, the look, what the kids are into now. I respect them 100%. I just don't work on them. Mm. <laughs> it's the truth. Everyone I don't knows. respect them. I think it's silly. I respect them, but I don't work on them. Now, I, you, wouldn't call, you wouldn't catch me dead working on one of those yeah. cars. I think it's great that they're having fun. I love they're to see people fun having fun. Because yeah. I had fun with my Volkswagen. That was yeah. a trend back then. Everyone in high school had to have a Volkswagen Beetle. That's why I bought one. Not oh. because I liked it from the start, because my buddies had them. Okay. And unfortunately, mine had a hole in the floor about this big where the water <laughs> will burst through it. Yeah? Uh, but it's, it's all trends. We all went through it as, yeah. as, as teenagers and you know, young adults. So it's stance kind of, kind of on the far spectrum and then say F1 on the other far spectrum. <laughs> Yeah, I kind of polar <laughs> opposites here. You be careful what you say next about whatever you're going to say. I don't know where you're I don't going. know where you're going with this, but I'm nervous right now. I feel like I'm. I don't know where I am on that spectrum. Where so say okay, I I forget my Olin's uh, DFV uh, suspension was. I want to say it was like, I think it was twenty four hundred. I think. Okay. And when I think about that, that's twenty four hundred dollars. That's a lot of money. That's like five VWs. Yeah, 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 back then. And or, I mean, that's more than for uh, for some people's rent. That's more than a month's rent for of some course, people. Of course. A lot of people, yeah. yeah. But am I really putting those Olins to to work? I'm, I don't, I haven't, I have yet to track my car. Mm-hmm. I unfortunately got in a car accident that kind of mentally changed me. And, and financially, that's another factor. Getting on a track costs money too. Of course. So... I look at myself, I'm like, I bought those $2,400 Olins and they're not being used. So I'm no better than the stance guy, I feel like. Well, and, and it's all about, um, and I do this a lot at the shop, is educating my clients. You need to know what your target is going to be with this car. You need to know what you want to do with it. 
if at that point when you bought this $2,400 piece of suspension, you really wanted to track it, you really want to perform on track and it was going to be your track monster all the time, I can't knock it. Yeah, you made a good investment. Uh, but if you're a guy out there who just wants to lower the car and just wants the looks, you're not really looking for for performance or function, buy the $1,200 ones. Don't buy yeah, the $2,400 ones. Yeah. So that's how I separate things. Is it is it about the looks or is it about the function and performance? So yeah, when, but you like being more higher performance, right? You like the idea of what, it. What are you I see? like the idea. I mean, you yeah. like the idea. I like at the, the idea. Time, at the time, the idea was great, right? Before the accident, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Of course. Of but course. your car is literally more capable now than stock. Of course. Yes. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So you improved your vehicle and that makes uh-huh. you happy, right? Yeah. I don't think you have to use it to enjoy it. I know you have to max it out to enjoy it. But but when I think about that, there's F1, there's stance. I'm closer to stance <laughs> than, than F1. Well, you're, you're not because separated with those two things. Stance, it's all about the looks, yeah. right? It's all about what you see first and the flash. But I bought something, I'm not using it. So then that's why I feel well, like... But nobody could see it. At, at, and, <laughs> but at that point, at that point, it was about using it and, and putting it to work on the track, right? So you are more towards the F1 spectrum of things. You're not there, but you're, you're not so much a stance guy. Yeah. So when people come to me for advice and saying, hey, should I really buy from our car? I just had this question a couple of weeks ago at the track. Mm-hmm. Uh, I told the person, where are you right now? What do you want to use your car for? Well, I want to be like a weekend warrior sometimes at autocross, and then it's going to be my daily driver. Okay, then you're going to buy this. You're not going to buy three grand worth of suspension. See where I'm going with this? So a lot of the work that I do on a daily at the shop is educating my clients. So, because I've already been there. Yeah, I don't want yeah. them to you know, spend money that they don't need to spend. If they say, no, I want looks. All right, you go buy these wheels, stance it out, and then nice to meet you. See you. Never, yeah, yeah. You know? So that's how that's a lot of what I do on a daily is is educating and guiding my my clients. What What are your personal feelings on transverse leaf spring suspension mm. on high performance race cars? Uh, it's efficiency. <laughs> <laughs> leaf spring suspension, really? You brought that up? Yeah, I, I used to have a couple of old C fives. Oh, <laughs> uh, no, it, it comes down to efficiency, and uh, yeah, the the McPherson strut and you know spring shock combination 10 times better so maybe so c5 was 2000 up to 2004 or 2002 i don't remember when they stopped uh 97 it had had to be early 2000s yeah 05 maybe yeah so do you kind of i mean just uh, just theoretical or opinion i guess opinion really Mm -hmm. do you think core uh uh corvette um general motors general motors Mm -hmm. Why do you Choose, hate American cars? Well, choosing a leaf spring <laughs> on a on a car that back then, I mean, that was probably twenty. Uh, that was probably a, a forty thousand dollar brand new car. Mm-hmm. Or no, it was sixty, wasn't it? Uh, the ZO, well, the well, CO, well, base price versus. So, do you think that was a? I don't know. Just we're we're just shooting the shit. I, I, mm-hmm. Do you think that was a bad decision to go leaf spring for that for that expensive of a car? Oh, okay, not at all. It was where they were as a company and where the design designers were at that time. So they came up with this chassis where the leaf spring suspension made the most sense mm. for space and packaging. Uh, also, a lot of um, chassis structure has a lot to do with it, or what, you can, what type of suspension you can put in a car. So where the company was at that point with that particular model made the most sense. And obviously as they're evolving and materials are evolving, um, the chassis itself is evolving, then you have more freedom into what you can do suspension wise to where, you know, they're, they move into, you know, springs and, and shocks and things like that. 
Uh, but it's where they were at that point. And you, yeah, it, it worked for them back then. And I think it was pretty successful. I, it was a pretty incredible car at the time. It was like super. Oh yeah. No, yeah. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's just, I, I, it's when I saw the leaf springs, I, when I was doing my personal research, I, I questioned why they chose leaf spring when at least my, my personal, uh, research, I thought the McPherson's, uh, setup was superior, but I mean, there's so many changes. The, the, I think in F1, they do, do they do the McPherson with, but the suspensions on the like um, perpendicular to the to the wheel, because then they get more. Right. It's at an angle, and it actually ties into the chassis or to the frame. And a lot of the pickup points are also on the transmission too, the car. They use this trans mm. the transmission on F1 and part of the motor as a chassis piece. Oh wow! Yeah, so F1 is a different animal because it's an open wheel car, and and things and angles are different because also packaging. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you yeah. have to package so many things, and it's tiny little body of a car, mm. including the driver. And you've seen the seating position in an F1 car. You have to you pull know. the steering wheel out to get in and out, right? Yeah, yeah. That's right, the, and yeah. the driver is sitting almost in a, in a, in a, in a laid back uh, resting position Yeah, because of, again, packaging. So when it comes to suspension, you also have to think about that. Mounting points and also what regulations will allow you to do too. So that's, mm. a, that's a huge thing. Mm. Uh, so what they were doing back there with GM, totally cool. You know, it worked for them and they sold a bunch of cars and the car eventually had to evolve just like anything else mm. yeah does does the mcpherson over the leaf spring just end up taking a lot more room than or does the mcpherson take up a lot more room than the it depends on the body of the car too so for that shape of the corvette back then they felt like it was just going to take too much space so mm. they had to go a different route other cars with different shapes different noses different slants will allow you for uh, had, more space had the best uh, trunk for a supercar <laughs> <laughs> yes, it did. And, and I'll I tell you a funny story because I used to own one of these yeah. uh, when the craze started with the Japanese imports and Acura coming to the U.S. and being labeled Acura. I had an 89 Acura Integra. Mm -hmm. uh, they're like the first true Integra, right? Mm -hmm. uh, Honda Integra in Japan. The Acura Integra came with what is called a torsion bar in the front. It had a shock in the front, but it had this giant metal bar that ran from the front suspension to about under the driver, and it's called a torsion bar. And it's a metal bar that twists as the car's going over mm -hmm. and oscillating over a bump. This was your sprint back then. Yeah. So we're talking about 87 through 89 production of this car, and Honda decided that even though they already used springs before in McPherson designs, that they were gonna put a torsion bar in this thing and mm -hmm. call it the Acura Integra. And I went, right, who would it? But it worked. Yeah. When, Japanese teams started to pick up that chassis, that body for racing. The first thing they did was ditch the torsion bar <laughs> and they put more piercing struts, more piercing struts from an Accord mm. because they wanted that design better. So uh -huh. out went these giant metal bars because it will save you weight too. And they went with cold over systems. But mm. again, that's where Acura Honda was at that time. Or let me say it again. That's where Honda Acura was at that time. They wanted to bring this car to the US, label it Acura, start this luxury brand company. But where the company was, it made sense to put a torsion bar on a car, and it was the most horrendous thing on earth. Because mm. was it, it was cheap, or what do you think the motivation was? It was space in the front. Okay. Yeah. Is, is a sway bar a type of torsion bar? It is kind of a torsion bar. It is a okay. big, long bar that flexes under load. Yeah. Okay. It, it, is, it was almost like a sway bar. This, these were all actually completely straight. and yeah. uh, But it did, had the same function, this metal bar that flexes to allow for uh, suspension movement. And it was something interesting that I learned way back there when I owned that car. How is it similar to the, um, I think a strut bar because the sway bar is below usually holding the, 
around like the end links around that is your link between your left and right suspension part whether it's front or rear that is what ties them together to keep the car from rolling mm-hmm. right so, and then but, but torsion is the a torsion bar is going to run it's the front tw- to rear it's the twisting oh, oh. of it yeah. oh and it's a, it's a it's twist it doesn't twist twisting. oh geez front and, to and, rear yeah and how that metal twist and and the tension that it can take is all predetermined from the factory um, there's there were thicker ones to handle more weight. There were slimmer ones to lower your car. It was just a mess trying <laughs> to get that torsion bar in and out of this car. The first chance I had, I, I got rid of it. I didn't want it anymore. Mm. So, uh, but yeah, it was pretty interesting. And, and I've seen a lot of design changes in cars, especially Japanese cars, uh, where things that made sense back then now no longer make sense. Technology has evolved. Materials, more than anything, materials. Uh, lightweight composites and things like that that are allowing for different designs and suspension and things like that. Um, we had a podcast guest, uh, Alex, uh, a few ago, and he yep. did go-kart go-karts racing, and he okay. ranked in one of the, uh, was it rental challenges or whatever they call it? But yeah, you didn't have to own the car, but you had to race against other other rentals. Some serious go-karters. But okay. he ranked wow. fourth nationally? Second. S- uh, second. Second nationally. Yeah. Um, from just kick the man down. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, Alex. <laughs> Give him his dues, man. Come on, man. Who does number two work for? <laughs> um, on, uh, during his podcast, I asked him, so how come if you are if you ranked number two nationally, that's kind of a big deal. That I think that's huge, especially in go-karting because it's so competitive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, that's, so I asked him, how come you're not pursuing this more? He saw he doesn't have sponsorships and he, uh, it kind of felt like he didn't know where to take it after. Mm-hmm. Um, by chance, just in your career, is there any advice? I, I, it might be very different. Yeah, but. you start young. And, and regardless, oh. regardless of whether you sit in a go-kart or a sports car or a prototype car, any type of motorsport is going to cost you money. Money drives a the sport. There is no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Racing is a rich man's game. And if you are someone without the means, you are going to sit out unless you find some type of sponsorship or you get that one big break. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I always tell up and coming or potential race car drivers who dream of becoming a race car driver is get your education. We don't hire race car drivers who are just, oh yeah, I know how to drive and I'm pretty good at it. You need to bring on your shoulders. You need to understand physics, science, math. Mm, wow. uh, so a lot of up and coming drivers who have the knowledge, who are really good behind the wheel, but don't have the financial backing, mm. they never make it. And then you have the opposite of the spectrum, which I see a lot is, the drivers without the skill, the knowledge they bring on their shoulders, but they bring huge amounts of money. Yeah, they end up mm. getting the jobs. Mm. How unfair is that, right? But it's, it's the reality of the sport. Mm. The sport is money driven, and companies are going to hire these drivers that come with some type of sponsorship, even though they may not have the skill, the knowledge. Where we can sit them down in the debrief session and say, "Look, this is the data that I'm looking at while you're driving, and you should be doing this, you should be doing that." And they're going, "What does this little line mean?" They don't know that because they don't understand the science behind motorsports. While that guy who has the knowledge is sitting at home because they don't they don't have the financial support. Mm. It's a cruel, cruel sport when it comes to drivers in that in that regard. Yeah. I don't think I, I don't think I were ever be able to make it as a pro driver. I don't think I ever had the financial backing for it. Mm. Yeah, I mean it's like a lot of sports, right? Uh, I think the Olympics is a lot of people that have. You have to have some type of financial well, even, support, even running for president. Well, it's not really a sport, though. You don't have to be in but good shape. But you need to have the... Oh, no, no. Fi- oh, sorry. I thought we were talking about the financial backing. The financial backing. Yeah. Even yeah. though you may be good at something, but it's really about the money. Uh, let's go back to F1. Those drivers in the back of the field, right? You sometimes wonder, 
how did this guy get this job? How does this driver get to drive for Haas, Haas performance? <laughs> right? How does he get to drive for whoever? Right? Because they brought money. Mm. The team needed money. Mm. F1 is a multi-billion dollar sport where teams are spending huge amount of money mm. and some of these drivers who are not very good are bringing the money and they get in the seats they're buying the spot on the team of course they're buying the spot they bring that sponsor and uh again from the lower ranks go-karts to f1 it's all money driven uh and and drivers a lot of good drivers that i have met throughout my career they never make it big because they were never able to secure that financial uh sponsor so I'm going to tell a bit of a random story. I think it involved you. We, we were at a S2000 meet. I might be remembering it incorrectly, but I'm going to just say my side of the story. <laughs> and if you happen to remember and want to change the, the story. Was so, it a Sonic uh, drive-through? No, 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 no we're, we're, so never met at Sonic. I don't think so. We, we did a, we did one day. walking around. <laughs> we, did, we did one day where we went to the go-kart, uh, I think it's Speedway or whatever, or what the name of I forget the name of it, but um, I was about to get lapped by you and one other. I was, there's one corner that really fucked me up. Um, there was a hairpin left and I thought the apex would be, or I thought the, the best line would slam on the brakes, cut in on that left and go out. I thought that was the best line. I started watching you and the other person, you guys are bombing out because the, the, um, the lane was wide enough. You guys are bombing out to the end and, and making the left at the end, and you're just trying to carry the speed through. Correct. And I was like, why? How did you guys figure that out? Like, but so I, I, my, I guess my question to you as a driver, and you guys, you and this other guy was about to lap me. Um, <laughs> when you see these lines, how, I don't know, like, how do you guys see it? What is, what is the art behind that? What is the creativity behind that? And, Were and, your and, tears like slicking up the track so <laughs> that they couldn't catch you? <laughs> and, there, and, there is, I mean, <laughs> The the uh, the embarrassment internally, yeah, it sucks, man. But I mean, when I see people figure out lines, it's, it's there's some type of art behind that. You want to call it art form? I call it art form. And if you remember the story the way you remember where I was passing you, then you're correct. Yes. <laughs> if at any point in the story you were passing me, I'm going to say it was incorrect. You don't remember it. Right? It so. was terrible because you guys lapped me. Because I, I mean, granted, I think that was the biggest corner where i i was losing so much time on that one corner. i mean i'm a bad driver yes i thought i thought i wasn't that bad but when both of you guys lap me i'm like dude i'm a terrible driver it, it, it so for our listeners lapping is where they get a whole lap ahead of you ahead of you yeah so yeah. they pass you several times while you're crying <laughs> yes yeah, yeah. um and and it comes down let me pose this this way to your job when you're programming and you're given a certain task in programming you've done it so many times right that certain tasks are super easy mm -hmm. right okay okay driving at speed and being able to see certain things mm. comes with seat time. As mm. race car drivers, we call it seat time. And we, drivers who have been at this for a long time, we can figure out things like that. And we can even figure out the machine that we're driving. So when we go go-kart racing is one of the things that I use for training a lot. Because anytime you get into one of these go-karts that are family go-karts, each one is different. Each mm -hmm. one handles differently, believe it or not. Yeah. Some of them oversteer, some of them understeer. I always some get of the them sucky one. Right? <laughs> but as a driver, you have to adjust to get the most out of this lap time and the most out of this car that you know you get the shitty one, right? Yeah. We are constantly adapting. But that comes with seat time. That comes with that experience of having driven so many platforms, front wheel drive, rear wheel drive, all wheel drive on track at high rates of speed, that the track actually slows down for you. So as I'm passing you, 
you are going like this next to me. Where to you, I'm going, you know, I'm gone, right? The actual speed slows down for you. Oh, you just have to think in bullet time. (laughs) Yeah. You've done it so many times that you can see things in slow motion. I can see another car out of the corner of my eyes. I can hear you coming behind me. I can hear your go-kart, even though I have a helmet on. Mm -hmm. I can hear you coming left or right. Those things that come with awareness, feel awareness, as you, the more you drive, the more seat time you have. So it's not that you're a sucky driver. It's just you haven't done it very much, right? Yeah, and yeah. you're poor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you haven't, you haven't done it very much. But for us to get in a car and say, i never driven this track before, which happens a lot uh, when we get invited to test a car. And they say, hey, can you get on a plane and come test this track in Alabama? I'm going, oh, I've never been there. Um, send me a track map. I'm going to look at some videos. I'm going to um, maybe try it on the sim. Hmm. and uh, I'll be there on Saturday, and we're going to do some laps. And you arrive, and you figure out, you know, six, seven laps in. I always had a, 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 a chief engineer always tell me, All right, the best drivers can figure it out, five, six laps, seven laps in. Hmm. Any track, even they've never seen it before, the good drivers can figure it out in about that time. If it takes them a little bit longer, their skill is not there yet. They may need more seat time, which is hmm. what we call it. So hmm. uh, that, that art that you call an art comes from that, comes from seat time. No pressure. You got six laps. <laughs> Figure that's, it out. That's pretty much it. A lot of drivers who get that big break yeah. and that for a major team, uh, they don't come with their financial backing, but they're they're saying, okay, get in this race car. You have six laps. Impress us. Hmm. And uh, sometimes wow. they don't make it. Sometimes yeah, they yeah. make a big enough impression in those six laps to get called back for another opportunity. Mm. You see that? Mm. And, and it's like that. It's a cutthroat business. You yeah. have six, seven laps to show us what you can do and that the fact that you can adapt. Oh, yeah. Winning is all that matters. At the end of the day, because money is all that matters in motorsports, and winning comes with a lot of money. So uh, anytime we won uh, the uh, Rolex 24, it comes with a nice Rolex watch. Oh, You have the watch option or you have the cash option. Every time I took the cash option. Oh, uh, you don't have a pile of Rolexes, bro? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a Rolex guy. I'm not a very flashy guy. So I was like, I got to take the cash option. Uh, some of the engineers, uh, depending on the season, we got, we got paid extra bonuses and things like that. Winning comes with a lot of good stuff. Because nice. the sponsors are out there flashing through the TV screen. Mm-hmm. And the more you're in the front of a field and leading a race, guess what? The sponsor's going to be happier. Mm-hmm. And all that is in a contract with the team. And, and that all plays a role. You know, that TV time is huge. What's up with the Red Bull guys? Do they play dirty? Uh, no, not, not that I know. <laughs> no. uh, it's, Just want to fuck around. Talk any, trash about Red Bull. <laughs> motorsports is all about gaining that advantage and still being within legal aspect of motorsports. We do it all the time. We push the limits and sometimes we get caught. It is what it is. You know, we tried, you know, because we, everyone wants to gain that edge, right? And sometimes we do some, you know, questionable things. And we're like, please, let's not get caught on this one because we're going to get penalized <laughs> or we're going to get a fine, you know? And, and it happens. It happens because it wouldn't be more sports if it's you're not like pushing the limits, right? right? It's like taking mm. performance enhancing drugs. There you go. If you're, if you're a bodybuilder, you're trying to push the limit. You're trying to get that edge, right? Mm. Same thing in motorsports. It doesn't change one bit. You want to get that edge over your competition. It is a competition at the end of the day when there's a lot of money involved. Mm. Absolutely. Have you driven the Nurburgring? I have not. That is a bucket list. Um, actually, I have a trip coming up to the um, test site in the Stuttgart uh, for BMW. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had some special projects going on out there, and maybe I can sneak through and go to the Nurburgring. So that's, mm, nice. that's been a project of mine. What makes it the ultimate racetrack? The history behind it, I believe. And the fact that it's just so long and every every driver dreams of driving it, you know, because it's so spoken of. Mm-hmm. 
but to me is where a lot of manufacturers go to develop their cars. Mm-hmm. Where a laptop of the Nurburgring and a car that works well there, performance-wise, can work really well anywhere else. Uh, prime example is the vehicle that I drive right now. No, I don't drive a BMW. Uh, I drive a Hyundai. So Hyundai the, said- The Ionic? No, I drive a Veloster N. <laughs> nice. So Hyundai said, um, we want to make this performance N-line thing. Uh, just like a TRD type of thing or a Nismo, right? Yeah. They spend the money. They open a factory and a development site at the Nürburgring. They bought out the BMW M designer for so many years and they brought him to Hyundai for him to develop this car and for him to develop this performance line Mm. of vehicles. And all those vehicles were tested at the Nürburgring. That's why part of the name is a letter N. Right. One, because of the town in, in Korea where they were manufactured, and the other one is because of the Nürburgring, because the car was developed there. And it's an amazing car. Hmm. It's a car that was really well put together, and it was put together by race car drivers at the Nürburgring. Does it have incredible suspension? Fantastic. So, cause Some of the best that I've seen in a very long time for a very affordable price. Yeah, I'm a knucklehead, and I see a Velostar, and I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, that's a Hyundai trying to be a sport car. That's funny. They have evolved quite a bit, and, and if you look at the Hyundai history and how they started, with yeah. those Hyundai Excels, so they were hideous. They were really square boxes, but it was a company who committed themselves to evolving and growing. Yeah. And and for them to make the investment to bring all these engineers from different companies, especially the BMW M line chief, mm-hmm. and put them in that factory, in that development site at the Nurburgring was huge. Mm. So when I was studying the car to, to buy it, I looked at all these things mm. and, and the technology behind it. And I, I think it was one of the best investments I made in a long time. And it wasn't very expensive compared to like a Civic Type R. Because hmm. you're buying the suspension, not the name. I'm buying the performance and not the name. Yeah. yeah. I'm buying the, because the car's not very flashy and it doesn't have red suede seats like some other cars out there, you know, <laughs> and it doesn't have, you know, uh, lights on the mirrors and it doesn't have, you know, uh, heated seats. No, I bought a car for the performance. Hey, my, my truck has about 12 inches of suspension travel. <laughs> How many inches of suspension travel is typical on the BMWs that you work on? Uh, it all depends on the chassis and the weight that they're carrying. So yeah, it's not, it's not very much. Uh, we don't we don't travel more than three four inches total. So from uh, top to bottom, a full stroke. Yeah. Okay. And and those strokes we count, and uh, we analyze the amount of strokes per lap per corner. Yeah. yeah so to, for our, for our audience, we're talking about if you have a car and your wheels moving up and down, mm-hmm. what is the total distance it can move that's, up and down? That's called a suspension stroke. Yeah. So. Tw- uh, a foot of suspension is insane. That's uh, for off-road trucks. Yeah. So um, uh, just to give you an example, on a very flat track, like, you know, uh, I don't want to use Lime Rock, but it's Lime Rock, pretty, not very bumpy. So we see, we call them suspension events. We see, uh, let's say out of any given corner on the car, we see, let's say within a lap, we see 700 events. When we go to a bumpy track like Sebring, we're looking at 1,800 events per lap in one corner of the car. So we Event to- is a bounce of your... Up and down. Right. So we need to look at that when we design stuff is can that strut assembly withstand that for 12 hours? Mm -hmm. Can the suspension withstand that? Can the material withstand that for 12 hours? And we do extensive uh, testing on the, on the uh, suspension dyno machine for that. We put the suspension to the test. It's exciting. Uh, Just for that purpose. Yeah. Do you think, uh, this is a silly question. Do you think you could describe the major, major uh, car manufacturers, Honda, uh, Toyota, Okay. Nissan in one or two sentences describe their suspension. 
um, the characteristics or the very, suspension. Very similar. Japanese All? Japanese manufacturers design very similarly. Or less. Yeah, but Hondas um, feel different though, right? Hondas feel more go-karty? They do, but it, it all comes to cost of production of the car. Mm. So, and also who is involved? The new Supra, right? We all know that BMW was heavily involved in that. It's basically BMW. But the Toyota badging on it, right? Mm -hmm. So the suspension of that is going to feel different. It was developed by someone else. Uh, mm. So that also plays a role. But Japanese designers and manufacturers manufacture pretty much the same way. Mm. Uh, especially since like the mid 90s where Honda, Toyota, Nissan, Mitsubishi were pretty much putting out very similar designs and suspension structure. Just the cars look a little differently. Wow. And so then, you almost break it down to just country, huh? Pretty like, much. Like, now, uh, Nissans are French now. Well, yeah, that too. But then you had the Mitsubishi involvement with Chrysler back in the day yeah. where you had the Diamond Star car, right? And then... You know, Chrysler's like, well, let's put some of our flavor in it. They're like, uh-uh, no. This is going to be an Eclipse. You want to put your badge on it, we'll call it that. Done. But now you have more lenient stuff, like that BMW partnership with uh, Toyota. Then you have that Toyota partnership with Subaru, with the FRS and the BRZ, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. So they're collaborating more than just simply putting a different badge on the car like they did in the 90s. Uh, and, and good technology has come out of that. The new GR86, I, I think it's going to be a great car, is... It's an FRS with in a better motor, you know. Uh, good collaboration there between Subaru and Toyota. I, I think it's good. But it still has a Toyota flavor, even though the rear suspension is a Subaru. Uh, but it still has a Toyota design from back in the day. They never stopped designing the same way. Mm. Yeah. My, my old Dodge Neon had a Mitsubishi motor. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Again, that Chrysler-Mitsubishi yeah. partnership from back in the day. Uh, Toyota had that partnership too with GM back in the day. Or the Geo Metros. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, you know, there were Corollas with GM badging on it, right? So all those partnerships came from that. Uh, and the, But design ideas came from those partnerships, too. The Geo Metro was a Corolla? Was it a Tercel? That's Corolla. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Not the a Geo, Tercel? You had the Prism. You had the Geo Prism and the Geo Metro. Uh, no. And, uh, yeah, the Prism was a Corolla, I believe. And the Metro was a little smaller. Oh, okay. But those came from, and they had Toyota engines. Because they're like, GM is like, uh, we need a fuel-efficient Econobox, but we want to call it GM. We want to call it Geo. Mm. <laughs> we don't know how to make small compact We don't know how to make small cars. compact cars. And Toyota's like, here, take our engines, <laughs> whatever. And just put your badge on it, whatever. And then when you went by parts, you can interchange with Corolla parts, you know, with Tercel parts and things like that. Mm -hmm. yeah. But uh, it seems like Japanese uh, car manufacturers and are much less hesitant to cooperate with each other. Like, you'll see crossovers with Yamaha, Suzuki. Right. Using engines and that's, that's always been together. that's always been the case since the late eighties. Yeah. Uh, popular example is the uh, Corolla FX16, uh, 88 that I had. Uh, it was a Yamaha design head with incredible amount of flow, way ahead of its time, and had a Lotus design suspension on a Toyota body. Mm. All these manufacturers working together to create this amazing machine that was way ahead of its time, suspension wise, engine wise, head flow wise. But it's because Yamaha is like, hey, I'll help you guys. And Lotus is like, oh, we know suspension, we know chassis. Let's put this into this car. Uh, yeah, the whole uh, Hashiroku had the same, you know, Yamaha head uh, and Intig manifolds and things like that because of partnerships with, with Toyota. Hmm. Would you uh, would you say Mercedes and BMWs have similar-ish suspension or? Uh, well, yeah, if you European, it? European designers designed almost the same way. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, uh, Audi, Volkswagen. And now Porsche, same company. Um, 
BMW, Mercedes, they're designed very similar. No, but aren't the Mercedes suspensions snobbier? They are. Again, it comes <laughs> it comes down to the production of the vehicle. They spend more money on their suspension and they charge more for their cars. Ah. And they use more expensive materials. But at the same time, their pickup points and design, uh, uh, articulation and all that is very similar in European. So you can separate it by region. Mm. And then U.S. manufacturers manufacture a lot of similar type vehicles. You know, Ford, GM, Dodge, they design. You look at their trucks, they look almost exactly the same, right? And they have kind of the same characteristics. You can almost separate it by region. Would you, if you had to say one, pick one country that's a, a head and shoulders a best at suspension, uh, which country would you pick? Germans, mm. uh, for sure. And not because of BMW, it's because their their suspension design and, and just the ability to put suspension properly in their car is just fantastic, is ahead of the game. Are they more complex and more expensive suspensions? They are. Is there yeah. a point where a regular driver says, I don't need this much performance? Absolutely. And that's okay. what I'm there to do, to coach them and educate them. Or actually, so that there's a similar question I was th been thinking about is, do you think the common car to some degree is over-engineered? I, I, we kind of touched on the idea where uh, when it has the, if someone's in your blind spot, a light comes uh -huh. up. So uh -huh. things, a lot of the cars are made so they well, are, well for us to be stupid. It but is, is over-engineered. That's, that's, that's exactly the way to describe them. They're over-engineered. So mm. the suspension that is on your average Camry, you say, well, it can hold the weight of the Camry, right? Mm -hmm. But it's also over-engineered to know that some idiot out there is going to overload the trunk when they go over the family trip. They're going to put the kids in the back. They're going to put a roof rack on it with extra luggage, and the car's going to sit in the ground as slow yeah. as it goes, right? The suspension is designed for that because they know that they had to make it idiot-proof, mm -hmm. right? It goes back to design and engineering, idiot-proof, right? Hey, remember that time we loaded uh, water balloons? <laughs> oh, I don't want, oh, I should have oh, I don't want to hear about this. Back of the old neon. We filled the trunk with water balloons. We were taking them to a park. Okay. And we figured we'd pre-fill the balloons. Because was the neon there. squatting pretty good? Oh, uh, yeah, it was <laughs> ass right. down, yeah. Right. And, and you're going to put your cooler out there and, and your barbecue stuff for your weekend, right? Mm. Manufacturers know this. So they're not just going to design the suspension to hold the weight of the car. They know there's going to be a large family that does not fit in this Camry. They're going to put seven kids in the back, plus the grandma, plus all the luggage and the roof rack. And they're going to want a tow with it, right? Because people go to extremes, right? Somebody's going to steal 17 bowling balls. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> right. And, and uh, so, but also early wear and tear on cars comes from that, from people not understanding that there's limitations to stuff. Yeah. Um, someone once told me before, and I used to agree with that. Now talking to you, I think it changed my mind. Oh, um, ooh, I feel oh, special. <laughs> Hello. Um, you ruined it for him. <laughs> like picking parts for my S2000, what to do with it, where to put the $2,400 and whatnot. <laughs> I had a friend that was saying, well, work on the suspension first. You could always add, add horsepower. Uh -huh. And then, but now that kind of uh, some of the things you're saying, you got to really focus your car. Cause I mean, you could add some suspension, but then all of a sudden if you decide to go, if you could go to 2000 horsepower on my S2000, that suspension that I built the first time probably wouldn't. Okay, so. You always that. build vehicles from the ground up. Anytime I start a class in college, I ask my students, what is the most important component in a car? The driver. The driver, the engine, the transmission, it has the to be The budget. Tires. Oh. It's what's keeping you on the road. It's what's putting <laughs> those thousand horsepower to the ground, right? It's what's creating that, that, that friction, right? To keep you on the road. So when we're building race cars, 
And when you build your own personal vehicle for performance purposes, start from the ground up. You have your suspension, you have your brakes. Mm. Please, please put brakes in there. <laughs> you have your, your tires, your brakes, your suspension, and you slowly work your way up, mm. right? Okay. So knowing that eventually you're going to put 700 horsepower under the hood, you already have the foundation. Always build a car for performance from the ground up. Uh, but a lot of people fail for that because the later generations, and I don't want to say millennials, but sure, why not? <laughs> it is they're power hungry mm-hmm. because what they see in the movies and the way they see on TV. So you don't see them buying a brake kit for their car. They're going to put that intercooler on first. They want the big turbo conversion, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. The, you know, they want the big throttle body. You know, they want to up the boost, right? Power hungry generation is what changed that. In the past, we used to design differently. We used to design from the ground up. Mm. Now you give a kid a key to a brand new 2022 Subaru Impreza, WRX or STI, whatever they call these days. Mm. They're not going to improve the brakes or the suspension straight to the turbo, mm. right? Mm. More power, right? Mm-hmm. So that's, that has also changed the aftermarket performance industry where mm. you open a website to any vendor or any supplier. The first thing you see is power adders, right? Mm. Because that's what people are buying first. They don't care about tires or wheels. It's funny. The, uh, the only real upgrade I have on the Raptor is uh, a high-end uh, rotors and pads. There you go. You do a lot of towing <laughs> with it? No. no. Well, now you have your safety taken care of, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, they're what? drilled and slotted. It's fun. Well, there you go. It'll, what it'll what good fantastic. is all that horsepower if you can't stop it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or if you can't put it to the ground with a good set of tires and wheels or yeah. with a good suspension, right? Yeah. I had a friend who uh, he he dropped a supercharger in his S2000 and then he... He was like, yeah, it just doesn't feel right. <laughs> and then I asked him, what tires you got on there? He said, all seasons. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, that's, yeah. I think that's your mistake first off. But he yeah. didn't, he, well, it doesn't matter. He didn't, he didn't believe me. I'm like that you should. Those are you're, fine. If you're going to get more horsepower, you probably need to get something that can handle it. It's, it's the different generation, different times, different culture, where the car culture is not what it used to be. Now it's all power, power, power. I'm going to beat you from a, you know, a dead go at a traffic light. <laughs> uh, because that's what's popular, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, you're gonna see that guy. You're gonna rev on him, and you're gonna go. Mm-hmm. So you need the power for that. You don't care about stopping it. Mm-hmm. So you're in a street race, and then you're doing a hundred, and then you realize your brakes are not there. Uh, sorry, you know, uh, different times that we're living, uh, and different technology, and, and putting power behind the car is what everyone is seeking these days. Do you are, have? Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh. Are electric cars cheating? No, <laughs> not at all. It's technology. At the end of the day. And okay. they are using it to the max. Yeah. They are putting some amazing equipment out there. Uh, and reliability is getting even better. Yeah. Um, and, and why not? You know, we have to evolve sooner or later. You know, the internal combustion engine has to evolve. And most manufacturers are committing to full electric, whether it's a Toyota, a Honda, or a Ford. They're committing to full electric by 2025. Yeah, Volvo's jumping out the gate. Yeah. What a change or to that kind of connected with that. What changes do you see in suspension due to, because I'm guessing the weight distribution is different. Of course, the- where the batteries sit and all, and you know, how, how heavy these, these electrical motors are, you know, um, where you need to position the driver to, you know, for those batteries to have uh, take place. Yeah. Suspension plays a big role and they're becoming more dynamic and more electronically controlled because the weight of the car is balanced differently than an internal combustion engine that just sits in the front, right? And if you have a rear wheel drive car, you have your drive shaft and you have your rear differential or your front wheel drive car, a lot of the weight, 60% is in the front. With electric cars, a whole lot different. And what they're bringing in is a lot of electronic control suspension to balance out this weight better. So as the car is cornering, the suspension is adjusting to these different loads where the center of gravity on an electric car is completely different from 
an internal combustion engine car. Hmm. Okay, so when I get my wide body Countach, I got to come to you to adjust the suspension. Absolutely. Yeah, bring it. I would love to work on it. Uh, I work on all kinds. I, now that I look back, I work on all, all kinds of cars, and, and it's pretty fun. It's very challenging, but at the end of the day, it's math and physics. I'm yeah. still, I still have a mass in motion that I need to keep under control. Nice. But a lot of technicians in town don't know that. They don't have the education for that. They don't have the knowledge. And, but they'll sell you pretty pictures. They're like, well, I worked on a Lambo last week. You didn't yeah. know what you were doing. And uh, I run into that a lot in town where they feel like they are competition. They're not. They don't understand mm. the science behind the suspension design and, and engineering. So, uh, so we see that a lot. And there's, there's some competition out there, but I. Back uh, to that uh, um, country's suspension by country. What do you think about Italy with, uh, is that uh, Lamborghini and Ferrari? What's their suspension like, or your opinion? We they, leave Fiat out of that equation. Same company. Um, they designed the European way, uh, just like BMW and, and, and Mercedes, right? They designed the same European way. They are just at a different level. And what sets them aside is the materials, budget. the materials they use, and the budget. Uh, you know, uh, at a different level. So, uh, a Ferrari with a full carbon fiber, you know. Monocoque, it's, it's going to be different than your regular Mercedes CL, whatever, you know. Uh, so those companies are at a different level when it comes to that. But at the end of the day, they follow the same European design structures that other mm -hmm. European designers uh, come up with. Isometric. Um, <laughs> so the Hyundai. So you are you look? Um, is that like the best? But um, I don't bang know for I, your buck. Yeah, that, I want I want to say budget or bang for the buck. So no, the look, Challenger also has great suspension <laughs> for a very heavy car. I don't know about that. I'm no? not familiar with it, but I don't think it, I don't think it, it, it does really well. Does it, it just looked like a giant beast. <laughs> a tank. Um, the reason why I went Hyundai is because I always been a front wheel drive hatchback guy from my early beginnings. Yeah, that Toyota that I was talking about, the Corolla FX16 hatchback front wheel drive. Uh, a lot of guys are rear wheel drive or their life. I respect that. Uh, a lot of guys are Evo forever, right? All wheel drive, Subaru, all wheel drive. I respect that too. The C5 Corvette is also hatchback. <laughs> you want to call it a hatchback? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a stretch, man. That's no, a stretch. I, 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 Serious. Yeah, I think it's labeled whole, as a the hatch, right? Comes yeah. Up with the trunk. Well, yeah, yeah, I guess it's called a hatchback. <laughs> yeah, sure. Why not? Let's go with that. Uh, but it was not front wheel drive. <laughs> no. Uh, so I always been uh, since I, I got into cars. Always been a uh, front wheel drive four cylinder car guy, where the four cylinder is very efficient and 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 it does everything really well. So when it came time to look for the latest hot hatch mm. that was best bang for the buck, mm. had the technology without the flash. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. like a GTI, you know, that's very expensive because it has plaid seats um, <laughs> uh, or the, the red suede seats in the Civic Type R, the Hyundai made the most sense. Uh, Wait, what boring of, color is your Hyundai Velostar? Oh, it's, it's about as white as it gets. <laughs> it's, it's you have stickers all over it? It's boring white. No, no stickers. No stickers. Uh, it's just a regular Velostar out there. It just looks a little different because of, of the... the uh, end line thing that they came up with with a little more aggressive body styling and things like that. Um, but it made the most sense um, money-wise, performance-wise, uh, and technology-wise that I was looking for at the time. Five years from now, maybe I'm going to be looking for a different type of hatch. Mm. Whatever's in the market, I'm going to make the same decision where it makes money financially and it also makes uh, uh, sense in 
what technology I'm looking for at the time. Right. On the Hyundai thing, I thought I heard also that they also hired the chief designer from BMW. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I, heard, I heard that a lot of their cars, I forget what it was from, I forget, I don't remember the year, maybe 2010-ish or something. So a lot of this design started to get better and better. And I, when I look at Hyundai nowadays, I'm like, damn, they, they really did do a pretty decent job. And for this particular M line that they have now, their performance line, they brought the M BMW guy in. Mm. They, they paid him an insane amount of money. Mm. They built a factory at the Nürburgring, a development site, just for that. Uh, so they, they were very committed. And that's one of the things that drove me to buying that car. Uh, and it's always a manufacturer that always intrigued me with their efficiency. Uh, and that 10 year, 100,000 mile warranty, man, you can't beat it. <laughs> I actually been tracking the car a lot. I've been to a lot of track events. I drive it uh, at speed on track. It was, it was, it was designed for that. Yeah. And as long as I don't do crazy modifications to it, if I break it, it's covered under the warranty. You can't beat that. <laughs> so so wow. here's, here's a key to a car that you can beat up on track and was still Replace your engine transmission if it's not the brakes. Not until they watch this podcast. <laughs> oh, no. No, they'll, they, they'll, they'll warrant it. They'll figure out some they, legal they will, reasons. Yeah, unless I do, let's say, a bigger turbo or I upgrade, yeah, yeah, or upgrade yeah, the yeah. head or do like yeah. pistons and stuff or internals. Mm-hmm. Then they're going to say, you're crazy. Hmm. But if I keep everything pretty much factory, they will cover it. So How amazing it, is to put that stamp of approval behind your product? I think yeah. it's pretty cool. So we got we got some racetracks around Vegas. We got uh, the Vegas Speedway. Oh, jeez. We got Speed Vegas down south. Okay. We got Spring Mountain out in uh, Pahrump. Pahrump. Mm-hmm. Did I miss any big uh, tracks that? I don't think we have anything else. And okay. I don't even count Speed Vegas because that's that's it's a bullshit track. It's not that. It's just it's, it's a track that is for business and business only. You know, uh, where you know you have Speed Vegas now married to um, what is that called? To, uh, to, uh, not Dream Racing, but uh, Exotics Racing. So mm-hmm. they 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 merge and. They run a business out of it. You can rent the track for the weekend and do a couple laps if you want, but it's not, in my eyes, it's not a pro track like Spring Mountain. It's not a track that is dedicated for racing and racing only. You couldn't hold an actual event there for motorsports. Can you take your Velostar out on Spring Mountain? Absolutely. I have taken it already, and I've taken it over to the Speedway as well at the outside road course. I've done it twice already there, and I've been to California and different tracks with it. Willow Springs? I've been to Willow Springs. I've been to Button Willow with it, and I've been to Laguna Seca with it too. Okay. And so I only had it for two years. So I've been around with the thing for a while, but I'm enjoying it. Yeah. How many sets of tires you burn through? I'm only in my second set of track tires. Ah. The car is very efficient on tires. Um, the set of tires that I was using last, I was pretty impressed with the fact that I already had them for four track days and they still have the logo on the center thread. Hmm. I, and, and obviously I have it set up properly. The suspension, I worked on the angles myself. I, I know what the car needs. And it's very efficient, really, really efficient on tires to the point where I can stretch a set for a very long time. Don't you want to burn through your tires so you're carrying less weight around the track? No, you want the tire to be on the ground and you want the friction to be constant. And these tires are really good for this car. They they have been pretty solid. So okay. yeah, I don't want to burn all the rubber to be lighter on the track. No, I'll do that with, <laughs> I'll do that with fuel management. You know, I carry just amount of, the right amount of fuel. I, I take some stuff out of the car, but... I was at that point in my life where I needed a car that I can commute with every once in a while, but also take to the track. And that's where this car came from. Before, it came from a track of my, my Honda Civic that was a full-blown race car. And anytime I wanted to take it somewhere, I had to tow it. Mm-hmm. And I had a truck back then. But things change. Did you have so, a dually with a trailer? No, I had a Nissan Titan. <laughs> because <laughs> the Civic only weighed about 2,000 pounds. Ah. It was a super light race car, uh, you know, nice 
powerful motor, suspension and all that. And we were doing time attack events and things like that. But it was kind of a pain in the rear end because I had to tow it anywhere I went. Mm. Hey, and can, I'm done towing. Now I just want to drive to the event and come back home. Can you explain high octane gasoline to Americans? Because I love my car and I want to spend more. I want to <laughs> give it the good gas because it's a nice car and it's new. And I, I need to give it the big 91 octane because that's good for my car. It's cleaner, right? right. And, and there's also the, the rate at which it burns too. Uh, and it will run cleaner that way, uh, the high octane fuel. And then also the lower octane fuel does have a lot of contaminants that will ruin an engine over time. Oh, really? I thought it was all bullshit. No, no, it's, it's true. Oh, I thought octane was just the, um, the, the ignition point, right? No, it's going to be also, well, the ignition point is also the burn rate, how long it takes for it to burn. Uh, so what happens with the cheaper fuels is that they burn a little bit slower, but yeah. they do also the byproduct of that is a lot of contaminants. So you'll see, so when you study uh, oil in a lab, we study oil from a car that's been using cheaper fuels compared mm -hmm. to one that's been using high octane fuels. And you'll see the difference in. Oh, in, I thought it had to do with the detergents in the. It has oh. to do with, oh, I'm good. Thank you. It has okay, to do so with. So I got a, I got a 5.4 liter Ford V8. <laughs> the 5.4 liter. I love that thing. Do I need to put uh, high octane gas in this? It's I, not. I would put nothing but higher than mid grade. I, okay. I unless, it's a, unless it's a flex fuel. So, so correct me if I'm, it is. I'm wrong. I've, I've researched that. So say if, a, in, if the manufacturer has designed that engine for 87 octane, mm -hmm. they have designed it for that. If you try to use 89 or 91, there's a chance that it's going to throw off. It's, I, I don't remember the, the exact wording. Okay. It's going to throw off the engine. It's not going to work at it's, it's not optimal. Perfect. Yeah, it's not optimal. Actually, uh, when manufacturers design, let's say, uh, a vehicle for uh, 87, right? Mm -hmm. And you happen to put 91 in it because you feel like it's cleaner, it's going to last longer, it's going to be better for your engine. In the algorithm for the engine management, there's room for all of that to understand different detonation points, different combustion points, different flash points. There's different. a computer managing your engine performance. Correct. Yeah. So in the engine management, all that is built into algorithm. So yeah, they say, well, it's designed for 87, but one day you decide to throw 86 because a certain state that you travel to put 86 only has 86 or you put 93 because a certain state that you travel to has 93. All yeah. that is built in already. Sometimes in. you go to different altitudes, they got different octane. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And um, manufacturers design, again, over engineer, what we were talking mm -hmm. about earlier, for that because they know there's different availability especially in north america for fuels so that is all built in, in the algorithm so if you put 91 in it and your flash point is a little different your ignition is automatically going to adjust for that mm. and your injector pulse rate is going to adjust for that too because it's already built in so don't be afraid to switch your fuels but yeah there's no but i got a two-year-old corolla is it going to do me any good to spend all this extra money on 91 octane in the long run yes it's gonna it's gonna help mm. you yeah and using the cheaper fuels Okay. Yeah. If you want to use the cheaper ones, please go ahead. But from what we have seen uh, research-wise, yeah, it does affect uh, your oil. It does affect other components to where the point where the oil breaks down earlier because of the contaminants and things like that. So, yeah, there's, there's a wow. lot of, of interesting stuff behind fuels. And you mentioned altitude. Yeah. We had a particular problem with uh, Toyota Land Cruisers uh, from the late 90s, early 2000s, where okay. anytime they went to a different altitude, it would throw a check engine light. Yeah, And then Toyota realized that in the algorithm for altitude changes, they did not build enough range mm. to understand higher altitudes like going to Mount Charleston. So I had a lot of clients who went from Vegas to Mount Charleston mm. for the weekend. They mm. came back with a check engine light. Mm. Oh, wow. And they're saying, no, this brand new car is horrible and I'm going to have to <laughs> trade it in. No, 
then Toyota realized that a quick software upgrade. Ta-da. There was there was out there someone programming, right? And 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 doing coding. Some kind of engineer. Some kind of engineer. <laughs> wink, wink. Yeah. Right. This uh, discovered that yeah, it was just uh, a range in the algorithm for altitude that was not uh, wide enough. Simple. Back to the dealership recall letter that you got in the mail. Took it back there. A thirty-minute flash upgrade took care of it. Done. A lot of people don't know Las Vegas is at about 2,000 feet altitude. Correct. The the city. And then Mount Charleston over here, I think they're what, 4,000? Uh, there's a point where it's also 6,000, like the highest oh, peak. Okay. So, yeah, so it's pretty high. Up. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and the vehicle will make it no problem because it will fall into a fail safe, right? Yeah. Where it says, well, I don't understand the parameter. Hmm. The designers in the algorithm also put a fail safe to where it's like, okay, if, you know, if, and then conditions, right? Yeah, yeah. If yeah. this doesn't, work then go this way and so on and so on but yeah it was a simple software upgrade and you're going to see a lot of that and you uh, we've been seeing a lot of that in, in, in vehicle design where a simple flash will solve a lot of problems in a car what exciting would be, what would be some cheap or budget-minded um fun things to do in cars like for I, i'm thinking of so there's that um top gear episode it's a long time ago i forget what season <laughs> uh the three guy um jeremy may and and whatever uh, mm-hmm. you know it's an auto racing show where they have all those uh, really smart guys on there <laughs> yeah exactly they did one where they gave themselves a two thousand was a two thousand dollar budget and mm-hmm. then they did um a ra- um like a rally course a small one mm-hmm. and that looks so much fun um from your experience of all working on cars is there something that you is there did, some dirt cheap rally racing around that we can do <laughs> or dirt cheap fun actually at speed vegas they have a rally school too oh really yeah, yeah. Yeah, a friend of mine used to own uh, a rally place, and I don't know if he still names it the same thing, but Speed Vegas brought him in and absorbed that business, and mm-hmm. they have a dirt lot, a dirt track on the back where you can take a car in a rally course. Mm-hmm. So you guys should look into that too. Mm-hmm. Uh, so shout out to Ray. Hey, Ray. Um, hey, Ray. Um, but I mean, I've seen they have like those uh, Baja Trophy-looking trucks. Are you talking yeah. about that or is it something else? And, and there's also, um, he had at one point, he had a couple Subarus, and he had a, a Chevy Aveo that I prepped for him when he was doing NASA Rally. And I don't know if he still has it. And if, I don't know if he has uh, phased out those vehicles or not, but I know that business of rally school is there now too at Speed Vegas. Mm-hmm. So they continue to absorb more people and more businesses. Mm-hmm. But uh, as far as cheap upgrades go, uh, it's really cheap fun, cheap fun, like- cheap, cheap fun. Uh, yeah, go with uh, with an older body car. Uh, you know, slap on an engine on there and some set of tires. Depends on what you want to do with it. Whether it's rally drift, right? When have you seen like a brand new? drift car out there that is not all dinged up and battered right, right? Mm-hmm. it's usually those old 240s right those mm-hmm. old corollas right here if you want to just do it for fun for cheap take an old body put a decent engine in it throw some tires on it, go have fun mm-hmm. whether it's rally road course or drift just do the cheap route and have fun uh you're not going to buy a brand new ferrari to just go drifting right mm-hmm. what are some of the things that you could <laughs> <laughs> what are the things you enjoy so it sounds like you like to track your your hyundai now uh-huh. right um, and Wait, if you're drifting, do you buy non-sticky tires? Yeah, you buy all seasons. Okay, the, the, <laughs> cheap, the cheapest you can get. Yeah, those are gonna burn them like up. like nine king zero zero ones. And they're like they're like seventy dollars a tire. Buy those because yeah. you're gonna burn through them. They're not gonna stick really well. They're gonna allow you to slide if you're in a, like a really low horsepower car. Yeah, yeah, they allow you to slide and then just have fun. Burn them up. I'd mm-hmm. rather burn through a cheap set of nine kings for yeah. seventy dollars each. 
than a set of Yokohamas, you yeah, know, yeah. for $180 yeah, each. Yeah. You know? We need drift tires that focus on the smell of burning rubber. <laughs> yes. um, there were some that were, that were uh, colorful in the past. They had yeah. this dye in them that they were burning. They would change different colors. Mm-hmm. Why? Just go burn the cheap set. For, you're you know, putting on a show. Yeah, you're putting on a show. But yeah, Everybody's there's, watching a, me. there's a lot of cheap ways to go racing and have fun at high rates of speed and control environments too. Like a lot of folks in town do autocross. I just did an event two weeks ago in the Hyundai. Uh, I put the you know, track tires on and went you know, autocrossing. Do that. It's cheap. You can do it with your family car, with your sedan. Yeah, yeah. Bring it with the factory tires. Who cares? Mm-hmm. Go beat up on it in a small control environment. So uh, shout out to my SCCA Las Vegas region folks. Uh, are good people out there. My Raptor has uh, Walmart tires on it. Best tires ever. Walmart. <laughs> I think they're Sumitomo Encounters. If you want. If you want some fantastic. Haven't you noticed that the cheapest tires always have the funny names? Yeah. Like Sumitomo Encounters. You know. Yeah. Uh, I, you know what? I'm surprised because I, I bought that thing like three, four years ago yeah. and it just came with those on there because whoever yeah. did, didn't care. Yeah. But surprisingly, I have no problem with them on road or off. So it's weird. It was like... like uh, Nanking uh, Love Trail, something like that. You know, they have the funniest names. But it's, it's I've just down the Love Trail. <laughs> the, the, you know, the cheap tire route is, is always the way to go when you're trying to just do some sort of racing and you're an amateur and you just want to do it for fun. Don't spend too much money. Just buy the cheapest tire and you know off the shelf suspension and go have fun. Get the seat time because mm-hmm. it doesn't matter how you get it. If it's an expensive car, a cheap car with cheap tires. You know, with the Sumitomos, you know, whatever they call the, uh, what's it called again? Encounter. Yeah. Encounter. I love that name. Uh, <laughs> the Sumitomo <laughs> Encounters. Just get the seat time. Yeah. And whether it's autocross, track days, uh, endurance racing, drifting, get the seat time, no matter what it is. That's the, at, at the end, that should be your goal. Got any fun memories from your races? Oh, man. Um, we had highlights. We had one locally that was a 13 hour race, and actually it was a 14 hour race that was split in two days. Wow. So at the end of day one, which was Saturday, we needed to bring in the car, park it. No one could touch it overnight. And then the next day you get back into the car and you resume the race. So it was a 14 hour race split in two days. Mm. By the end of the first day, I was the last driver in and the alternator gave out. So the battery was dying Uh. and it was a race that was going to end at sundown. So the lights needed to be on. And this thing, every time we would step on the brake and the rear brake lights will come on, they will draw whatever power was left from the battery and it will kill the engine. Yeah. So for a good 10, 12 minutes towards the end of the race, I had to e-brake my way around the track because coming in was going to ruin our position. Gently use the brake if I had to, e-brake my way around it. And every time I would tap the brake, the dashboard would go dead. The engine would die. I would clutch kick it, restart it, put it in gear, Jeez. and go around. And it was right here at the outside road course. And my teammates can tell you that's exactly what I did. I kept the car alive for the last <laughs> 12 minutes by e-braking my way around the track. And they're like, they were radio me. It's like, hey, your brake lights are not working. I said, I got no battery left. <laughs> and and wow. I, I couldn't use the headlights. And, and people were trying to pass me. And, and you know, I, it was a really difficult end. But that knowledge of cars, that mentality kicked mm. in. I was like, I got to do something to solve this issue without bringing the car in and losing our position. And that was the best thing I can do. Just e-brake the heck out of it, nice. work with the transmission, turn to keep the engine alive, lightly tap on the brake and just wow. steer my way to, to the end. And then we brought it in and we kept our position. So, so for people that don't understand cars, the alternator is on your engine and your engine spinning the alternator to send an electrical charge to your battery. Correct. To keep your battery charged. Right. 
And you need electricity to fire your spark plugs? You need that. So the engine, if you don't have the electricity to fire the spark plugs, the engine goes dead. You need right. electricity to turn on your lights, right? Uh, yeah. You need electricity to turn on all the other components in the car. So if your battery goes dead, you everyone experiences it. Even if you don't know cars, you come out in the morning, you turn the key and it goes, and it doesn't start. Mm-hmm. Imagine the same scenario, but at the end of a race where you're trying to maintain your position and you're trying to win, yeah. but the car is dying on you mid-track and you have to improvise. Uh, and, and that's what makes racing fun. Where, But I think it's your complete understanding of all the systems. Where exactly. If somebody was just a great driver. Absolutely. If I didn't know what an alternator was, they'll be like, hey, the, the car just shut up. I'm going to pull over. No, we're not pulling over. We're going to finish these 12 minutes nice. uh, any, any which way we can. And uh, I'm fortunate that I, I think I was, uh, you know, I think it was fortunate that I was in the car last to where I can make it go that long for those 12 minutes or 14 minutes that we needed to make it to the finish line and maintain mm-hmm. our position. So that's one of the uh, fun experiences that I had behind the wheel uh, because it challenged me. Uh, I had to improvise. Oh, this is at the end of the 14 hours? It was at the end of the first seven. Okay. Ah, uh, so then. So, so the next day, how do we, you had, start? we had no battery. We had to push the car off the pin, <laughs> clutch kick it again, so we didn't lose the starting position, yeah. bring it in, put a new battery or an alternator, and then go back out. So you were able to pit stop right out the gate. Right. Oh. Okay. But if we would if, if we would have stayed oh, in yeah. and not started the race, we would have lost the position completely. Mm-hmm. So at wow. least we started, we took the green flag, brought it in, made the changes, and then went back out. And I think we had a pretty good finish that day. With nice. the e-brake, you're able to slow down enough? Like, or oh, how? no. No, it was e-brake, brake pedal combination. But I had to modulate that brake pedal a little bit. Wow. So those lights would not stay on for so long. Because <laughs> it was a Mazda with like four giant bulbs. <laughs> <laughs> the worst car for brake lights because they were huge. And every time they would turn on, all the electricity would go, wow, 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 wow. <laughs> the back looks like the Millennium Falcon. <laughs> and, and that's the failure that we had. And, and uh, I really enjoyed that part because uh, it, and, and as drivers, especially when we do an endurance racing, you're adapting every second because the car is evolving under you. The grip level is changing. The brake distances are uh, changing. The power is changing. The fuel load is changing. You carry less weight as you go. And the dynamics of turning are changing. So when you do an endurance racing and you're in the seat for two and a half hours, you're evolving every second. And Your as a driver, is evolving into numbness. <laughs> and, and, as a, and as a driver, you have to stay focused mm. uh, the entire time, and it, it drains you out, like like coating and stuff. Like yeah. after four hours, your brain shuts down. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. After two and a half hours in a car, three hours in a car, I'm ready to go to sleep. Yeah. And sometimes you have to double stint because you may have a sick driver or a driver who's not ready to come in. Mm. And then you're out there for two and a half hours again. Mm. Oh yeah, it, it, it wears you out. So you need to be in really good physical shape or at least some decent shape. So uh, don't start with endurance driving. Uh, oh, start, uh, start, okay. start with short races, <laughs> sprint racing is the way to go. Start with those yeah. 30 minutes, you yeah, know, yeah. 20 minute sessions, 40 minutes and slowly work your way towards endurance because it does take a lot of you mentally and physically. Yeah. Jumping back to that uh, suspension of Mercedes and BMW, and the snobby uh, comment that Emmett mentioned <laughs> is there. I knew there, he was going to say that. Is is a Mercedes? Uh, is it literally forty thousand dollars better? I guess that was kind of where I'm going with that. I don't know Mercedes that well, um, but knowing BMW, price wise, yes, if you're buying in Germany. But when you bring it to the states and you have to get all those import fees taken care of, mm. now the, the the price balloons. But the cost of manufacturing for the type of product that they're putting out there, I, mean, I can imagine Mercedes is the same way. Uh, yes, you're really getting your money's worth. Uh, but remember, you're getting a car that came from Germany. All those fees, mm-hmm. importing fees, 
and the tariffs are getting so high these days because domestic product is not selling. Mm -hmm. So what do they do? They raise the tariffs, they raise the cost of importing these vehicles. So a Mercedes is gonna cost you 80 grand where a Ford GM Dodge will be a whole lot cheaper. That is a way to control the market too. We don't control that. The government does. Yeah. yeah. So uh, that's why you're paying more for a Mercedes. But if you were to buy it in Germany, yeah, you're getting your money's worth. Mm. Absolutely. Is the suspension in the Mercedes tuned in a way for that comfort where uh-huh. is is the hardware still good enough where if you were just to take a Mercedes and retune it for a track, would, could that Mercedes do really well because to, of to the some hard- extent, uh, uh, To some extent, especially the sport models where they have that, that comfort, really luxurious feeling when you're driving the car, very quiet, but a simple touch of a button turns this car into a stiff track monster where it can handle high cornering loads. That's where the electronics are coming in. And that ability to control that valve in electronically and that stroke to where, oh yeah, you want to corner a little bit harder? We can do that too. Mm. So cars are getting so versatile or have gotten so versatile with, with the uh, assistance of electronics, even down to suspension to uh, where they're so good at both levels. And then you just press a button again and now you're in comfort mode where the suspension almost floats in the air and you know, you're taking a long trip out of, the, out, of the, uh, out of Vegas and you feel like you're just floating. Mm-hmm. Cars can do that now, things that you know, 20 years ago they couldn't do. They couldn't handle the best of both worlds. You have that now. Wow. My truck floats on the road and then it floats off road better. <laughs> um, you've seen videos. The owner of the shop that I work at, he has a Raptor as well. Yeah. And I've seen his uh, onboard videos when he's out there on the trails and, and it feels like he is out for a Sunday drive. Yeah. But the Raptor is out there just just going over the, 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 the humps like it's nothing. It's fun. Suspension. Mm-hmm. I, I try it, has that, it has yeah. that range. But when you're out on the street and you're cruising on the freeway, it doesn't feel like a like a really off-road machine where you're going to donate a kidney at the end of the day, right? No, it's still pretty comfortable. You can put the family in the back, which is huge. You got a giant back seat, right? It can do the best of both worlds. Manufacturers do that now, something they didn't have the capability of doing 20 years ago. You know know what's funny about the Raptor is the uh, first-generation Raptor gets terrible gas mileage. Oh, they do, yeah. It's like 14 miles a gallon. Second generation, they put an awesome turbo V6 in it. Mm Mm-hmm. It has more, EcoBoost. Yeah. yeah, more horsepower, more torque, and better gas mileage. Usually, you got to trade something. And more towing capacity, dude. Yeah, usually you got to trade something. Yeah. There's no trade. It's everything's better. Raptor people hate it. L- look at look at mm. uh, most manufacturers these days. They've gone the turbo route. Yeah, but they hate it because it it sounds like a turbo six. It doesn't sound like a big V eight. Mm. <laughs> well, you, you get you get into gas mileage, right? Mm. They don't care. They w- these are people that blew all this money on a ridiculous truck. They weren't trying to. Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah. What, what is that? What is that? What is a new Raptor? Let's say a 2019 cost in these days, 80 grand. Oh, these. Yeah, 80. Yeah, at least. Uh, that's if the dealer doesn't jack up. Thank you. And prices the way they are these days. Mm-hmm. I would rather buy the fuel efficient one with the turbo V6 uh, because I know I'm going to get some some good life out of it. Um, oh, dude, I would trade engines in a heartbeat. And and gas and gas <laughs> prices the way they are right now. Yeah. And and. Manufacturers have gone more of the turbo route, more of the force induction route, because they can get the best of both worlds. They can get the low end torque, the power when they need it, but they can also make them fuel efficient. So uh, turbos have been huge, even for passenger vehicles. Yeah. Uh, the evolution of the turbo, uh, it's been fantastic. Okay. Was it like the early 2000s where uh, turbos kind of, you saw it in more common, pla- in, in common cars? Yeah, and they can be tiny little turbos just for you to get that extra 
performance that you need to to get over a steep grade or you know if you want punch it you want to feel that that, that boost but it's the same car that gave you 40 miles to the gallon before you know so manufacturers are using turbo and manifold design for that uh to make that efficiency and, and you can still get 40 miles to the gallon even though you have a turbo in your car it's beautiful it's a beautiful marriage and turbos are really efficient these days my limited knowledge of turbos back then i was when i i forget what car it was i forget it was toyota putting a turbo in like a uh like a family sedan. It probably wasn't a family sedan, but it was more of a common person's car than a, than a, than a, um, someone that wants to spend money on a sports car per se. But I remember back there, back then thinking, I was like, this doesn't seem like it's going to end well. Turbos, they are, they can get very, if the, um, is it the, the fan, the, the, the bearing that could easily, the stress that it's under can easily break. And then therefore then everything else in your car mm-hmm. kind of blow, not literally blows up. So, but so reliability and longevity is what you were thinking. That's what I thought back then. But mm-hmm. I mean, since well, the turbos in the cars, I haven't seen, I haven't heard any issues. And, and for them to make it efficient to, to fight that uh, manufacturers are using after coolers. So a lot of the newer turbo cars, for example, is you get out of the car, right? You turn the car and you walk away, you lock it down and you hear a mechanical noise or like mm. a pump noise. There's a pump, or actually sometimes two, pump and coolant through the turbo mm. for that bearing to, to slow down uh, the temperature uh, dissipation and also still pumping oil through the system, mm. even though you already walked away to get those temperatures down and to work and to help the longevity of the turbo bearings nice. and the internals of the turbo. Mm. They have gone even that far to work on reliability because turbos run hot. Yeah, it's yeah, totally yeah. understandable, no, I, right? Yeah. And they can cook oil. Uh-huh. Manufacturers already figure that one out. Mm. Uh, and and you, you notice uh, in a lot of the newer turbo cars, they have the aftercoolers. We call them aftercoolers, where there's a pump running coolant. It goes through the radiator. Sometimes the fan still stays on to bring mm. those coolant temperatures down, but slowly. So that, that temperature ramp up of that bearing inside the turbo, right? The material has a certain tolerance. If you cool it down too fast, you're going to shorten the life of it and you can crack it. So these systems are designed to slowly cool down the temperature. So the material has a lot of time to bring it back to his, uh, to his structure. You so guys sound like a couple of engineering nerds right now. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, bring on the pocket protector. I, I think I may have one in the car right now. It's, it's all about the, the, the maintaining that the, the material structure and providing that longevity. I haven't really. Uh, paid attention to that technology lately back in the day back in the early 2000s i remember that was kind of a hot topic for people that wanted to add a turbo to their Mm -hmm. car to to do an after cooler but it it was spending money on from what i remember it was different you'd had to piece together a system there wasn't a built together system is it different nowadays nowadays is there any if you have a car that doesn't come with it from the factory you have to piece something together but um, as in like, um, say, say the S2000, which doesn't come turbo, uh-huh. is there, well, that's kind of a silly question maybe. Is there more modern cars that where you add a turbo and then do they, is the after, after coo- cooling, cool. is that a common built thing nowadays? It is now, yeah. Mm. It is now and it's easier to put on and add on if your car doesn't come with a turbo. Yeah, it is. Mm. And it's a system, not an intercooler that is running and cooling yep. the compressed air as you're driving. Yep. We're talking about after. What happens when you shut off that engine? Yep. What do we do with this hot boiling oil or this coolant that is still hot? Mm-hmm. How do we cool it down to 
extend the life of this motor and this turbo and these internal components. So manufacturers have really gotten really, really good at that. Mm. Uh, wow. and, and cars that 20 years ago, if you were to put a turbo in it, would have died six months later. Now they're lasting 16 years extra. Yes. Yeah, it's amazing. If you're, gonna, if you're gonna engineer your own aftercooler on your old S2, S2K, <laughs> Might as well just LS swap it, and then you're not worried about the turbo. <laughs> well, there yeah. you go. There you go. But now you have an LS swap that's going to drink. You know, it's going to run about five miles to the gallon. You know, so see that compromise there? Uh, yeah, LS the world. I think there's a T-shirt that says that LS yeah. the world. Uh, I got I got good mileage in that. Uh, if, if you drive it like a grandma, if you drive it like a grandma, and and naturally aspirated engines obviously started to phase out little by little because manufacturers saw the benefits of the turbos. Yeah, where you could get the best of both worlds. You get the performance. And then you get the fuel efficiency. Is would uh, any thoughts on turbo versus supercharger? It depends what you really need it for. Um, I like supercharger systems. Um, they just have a limitation, obviously, and turbos do too. Uh, but in my eyes, uh, or from what I've experienced, um, you can do a little more with a turbo than a supercharger. A supercharger is going to is going to fatigue fairly quickly. Uh, so, just arguments for both ends. Uh, also with uh, temperature control and, and, and cooling systems having to do with you know, how efficient they can be with a turbo or a supercharger. Uh, so there's, there's pros and cons to each, but it really depends what the end product is that you want your car to be. Fast, uh, loud. Fast and loud. Yeah, throw a turbo in it, a big, you know, a big dump <laughs> exhaust that is about this long you know, after the header, and, and, and that's it. Just run it out the side where the fender is, you make a hole in it, and then just dump it there. That's, and then you do your little two-step. Super riser. I just sounded super riser, super nerdy right now. Wait, if you had a million-dollar budget and you could pick one BMW right now, brand new one? Um, I like the M4 Competition. I really like that car. You can buy an M4 Competition. Mm-hmm. So Competition is even faster than an M4? Is, is there like performance line of the M4? Um, I really like what they've done with the M4. A lot of people don't like any even numbers on BMWs. They're very M1 or M3. That's a silly reason to not you know? like a car. But uh, they felt like BMWs with the M2 and the M4s didn't do so well. I feel like they did really well. Um, and it's not cheap, uh, but a million dollar budget, you don't need that for an M4 or competition. Two, yeah. but, but I think that would be my top BMW right now. And you know, six months from now could be something different. Not the Z. I don't. I wouldn't do like an i8 or anything like that. Did you like that old Z8? I always like the style yeah. of it. It was okay. I don't know. Yeah. What was wrong? Underpowered? No, I just don't like the the body of it. it oh, no, you don't like that roadster yeah. style? Yeah, I'm not a big roadster okay, guy. Gotcha. So yeah. <laughs> What's your thoughts then on the McLaren P1? I really like that car. I like that car too. Well engineered. Hmm. I'm a big fan. Big fan. Uh, McLaren just does really well with their their cars. I was, they, they look at so many details when designing a car. They're above and beyond. I don't know why I was expecting you to say like, oh, that's overpriced. Don't, <laughs> even, don't even ever. <laughs> don't. Shit. Yeah, that's no, what <laughs> you, no, you're paying for a really good car. A really <laughs> good car. Yeah. Um, I like the, the Top Gear episode. What is a, a McLaren P1, I think it was, and then a LaFerrari. And, oh, and, and yeah. And through a, a Porsche the, there too. The tree, they call it the tree. What did they the, call the, it? The Holy Trinity. Yeah, Holy Trinity. Yeah, Holy Trinity. Yeah, yeah. The, the McLaren is awesome. I, I think it's a great car. It, it does everything really well. And the active arrow on it is just out of this mm, world. I'm, yeah. a big, I'm a big fan of active arrow. Well, it does arrow. race car stuff very well. Oh, yeah. 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 McLaren does. Yeah. There was, uh, for the S2000, there was. Um, I, think I like they, how we talk about McLaren and the S2000 in the same phrase. <laughs> within, like, within like three minutes, we're talking S2000s, Honda Civics, and McLaren. This is a great podcast. I, 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 this is pretty Welcome awesome. Welcome to the car show. <laughs> There was a um, company that did, it was at the, 
So I think it was at the top of the coilover. We've lost a lot of listeners (laughs) (laughs) at this point. At the top of the coilover, and then I guess that's probably... The hat. uh, Not at the... but under it would be under the I think the under the frame of the car or the okay. chassis of the car, okay. and then it could um, it would do active uh, suspension. So then it would have it would attach to the ECU. You could plug it in, and then if you're going at less than fifty less than ten or fifteen miles per hour, it'll raise up the car. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if you go faster, then it'll lower the car. Um, I think it was something. It's on the McLaren. It was for the S two thousand, but okay. it was a ten thousand. It was ten thousand dollars. It was that. a ten thousand dollar upgrade. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And that's not including the co- coilovers. That's mm-hmm. just the that piece, the active. Um, I don't know. Oh. It raises your car when you're driving slow. So yeah, you know, yeah. Right. The uh, at the speed bump jumper. The active right height changer yeah. modulation. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, um, Mitsubishi had that in the three thousand GT in nineteen ninety. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I'd and they had an active lower chin spoiler that will drop down as you were picking up speed to give you more downforce. Wow. I used to talk shit about that car. I take it all back. I did not and know 3000 that. 3000 GT VR4 was way ahead of its time. It was underpowered, wow. right? A little bit. That V6 was kind of... But Probably for a, the weight. But it was a really good car. Was wow. the Dodge Stealth not as good? No. That, Dodge <laughs> Stealth was, that thing was just junk. Um, it's the same car. You guys familiar with the Mitsubishi Stereon? No. Uh like an early Eclipse type of thing. The Starion was another vehicle that was engineered way ahead of its time. Mitsubishi did some amazing things. Toyota, uh, Honda, not so much. Nissan, again, cars that were like, whoa. The technology that today we say, wow, that's amazing. Variable valve timing, woo, woo. These guys were like, this mm. is so 1988 is sad. Mm. They were way ahead of their time. Uh, VTEC on Honda. You see a truck now. Ford, it's like variable that timing and and you know variable cam angle honda's like we did that in 88 don't worry about it <laughs> it's cool don't worry about it um technology that and that's why i like um late 80s early 90s japanese vehicles so much because they're all ahead of their time they had technology that people these days still find find themselves in awe about that was already done as a suspension guy do you like four-wheel steering <laughs> it depends if the vehicle is heavy enough and yeah. long enough. It has a long wheelbase. Yeah, I like four wheel steering. Oh, okay. Uh, who did it well back in the day? Uh, Honda Prelude had a, a the SH model. They yeah. had a, a four wheel steering. Weird as heck. Yeah. And it wasn't. I don't think the long, the wheelbase was long enough. But they just threw something out there because that's where Honda was. And uh, <laughs> I know we lost a lot of listeners, but I think, <laughs> I think a lot of the nerds at home going, yeah, keep going. I like these guys. These guys are awesome. Uh, so a suspension boner right now. Yeah, so, uh, shout out to my fellow nerds out there because uh, we make the world go around. Uh, like I said, engineers lead the way. Um, something yeah. I learned from a military friends. So, um, so yeah, um, a lot of technology that we see today was already developed a long time ago from the Japanese market. A lot of domestic and European markets started catching on late. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I love that uh, the era of vehicle because of that. This is probably very subjective, just my memories of the Prelude. Gosh, what was it? That, I forget it was a 98 SH okay. uh, all-wheel drive. Was it all-wheel yeah, drive? Four-wheel uh, four steering. Four-wheel steering. Mm-hmm. And then even the Prelude, I want to say it was 92 but there was when i opened and closed the doors and sat and sat in the car when 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 um, my friend would drive it both cars felt solid and they felt like they stuck to the ground oddly 
I say oddly because I don't, I, I feel like my memory back then versus my knowledge of cars now and the price point of those preludes back then, right. I, I wouldn't have expected that. What, well, the prelude was a giant pig. The prelude was super heavy. Oh, so that's what and I... And that's why it felt solid and, and stuck to the ground because the body itself was huge. So you didn't see a lot of people using preludes for racing. Yes, They I would yank that. the engine out of it and then put it in a lightweight Civic for racing ah. because the prelude was a really heavy chassis to get to drop weight on. That's why it always felt solid. When the door shut, it had the... <laughs> yeah. it had the, it had the yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Where uh-huh. it's like, oh, this feels good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel secure, yeah. right? Yeah, when I when I do that to a Civic, it's mm-hmm. like, it right. feels like a hollow well, closing, that, a door, a hollow door closing. Because the Perla was a massive machine. It weighed a ton. Oh, that's interesting because I, I, my memory back then. <laughs> <laughs> it was heavy. I didn't know, I didn't know that fact. So mm-hmm. I was like, I was, I thought about it. I was like, man, this car feels like it could stick to the road and it feels solid. Why aren't other cars designed like that? But now I, okay. Because it was, it was a giant, you know, log. <laughs> okay. It was a huge machine. And uh, even the Accord for, felt lighter than it. It felt, it felt more nimble. Like the, you put a 98 Accord with uh, a two door with a V6, for example, right? Uh, it felt more nimble than in a Prelude. But the Prelude mm. felt more secure, more stuck yeah, to the road. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I used to have a 96 Accord, so yes. They had, a v, I, they had a V6 3.0 back then. Yeah. The two, the two right door did. Okay, I think last question before we go to the well, final except question. Except his suspension broke and he turned it upside down. <laughs> <laughs> I <laughs> put uh, it in the rail. <laughs> I was driving on the freeway. I was just, just lane change. Um, I, I think that I'm guessing the suspension modifications probably made other pieces weak or something, but the wheel the wheel actually broke. I think it broke in. Mm-hmm. It just, just on the freeway. Just They have very weak lower ball joints. Because they couldn't take the weight of the car. Ah, uh, you're too fat. <laughs> yeah. so, I'll never be a racer. So if, if you were a 350-pound guy, that ball joint was going to hold for very long. Huh. So uh, they had ball joint issues uh, on the front, and then they had lateral link problems on the rear. Okay, interesting. Yeah. There you go. It wasn't your fault. Yeah. I actually, uh, a few years, I think I think it was a therapy. Few, all the nerds are going home. Going, yes, yeah. that's what happened to my prelude. Yeah. No, sorry, sorry. A, a few years after that, <laughs> I mentioned it to one coworker and that coworker's like, yeah, I want to do a recall and I, a recall in the car or get lawyers, get a recall. I want to sue Honda. Do you have information about your accident? I'm like, I, I don't know. I, yeah, they I were still love Honda. <laughs> they were very heavy machines and, and I still love Honda too. And even though I went to a different platform, I still love what Honda has done. Uh, with their cars and their efficiency and their technology, uh, they always wanted to stay ahead. They had some periods where they were like kind of quiet, unlike Toyota. Toyota went full econo passenger fun, mm-hmm. and then they said, "Well, this is a passenger t- fun, yeah, passenger f- or, or driver fun to not performance wise." To where they're like, "Well, this is a TRD edition, but it's just just added a couple of flares and some alloy mm-hmm. wheels, right?" Mm, yeah. So Toyota went mellow. And then they brought yeah. out the Supra because they realized they were falling out of the market of the performance uh, mm. stuff, but they couldn't do it alone. They had to bring BMW in. Mm, wow. uh, while wow. other manufacturers like Honda, they're like, yeah, we still keep our Civics. We're gonna uh, downsize a little bit to the fit, but then we'll bring the Type R back. And Nissan has always stayed with the Z, right? And then Mitsubishi just disappeared from the map. <laughs> Poor guys. And then Subaru has always- The Outliner still is a fine vehicle. <laughs> <laughs> If was, you can't was, afford a Subaru, they always come back and they tell you, well, we make other things. We'll make air conditioners and big trucks. <laughs> yes, thank you, Mitsubishi. See you later. <laughs> where Subaru has pretty much remained the constant, where they still have their performance line, mm-hmm. but they have those fun, you know, off a trail type of uh, outbacks outback, and, yeah. and that yeah. type of thing where they cater to everyone. Mm. So that has been one of those companies that has remained constant and never had that dip. 
mm. you know. Uh, so shout out to Subaru for that. Good job for them. Okay, I think the last question is uh, the <laughs> Lexus question. <laughs> <laughs> the LFA? Yeah, LFA. What LFA. I don't know enough about it. I've tried to do some research. Uh, so I'm just going off of Jeremy Clarkson on Top Gear. He said it's his all-time favorite car. It is a great car. What What is so great about it? Um, the chassis itself. The way that they did the body, not the body of the panels, the chassis itself, what they did for the structure of the car, that put it above and beyond anything. Uh, and it has great power as well. Great looks too. Um, but it was a chassis itself. What was it about the chassis? Like, is it just super low? Is it? Uh, um, it was well built as far as the shape of it and also how lightweight it was. And um, it really made the entire car. The car felt really solid, easy to drive, very responsive. And it was just a blast to drive. And it, mm. it's just how Toyota did that chassis. Sounds, sounds like you've driven one. Yes, I have. And it was heck of fun. Wow. <laughs> I wish I could have driven it faster, but I, it wasn't mine, obviously. And I was afraid of, you know, There's not wrapping, a lot of them wrapping it around a tree. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. But it was a blast. And it was, a, you know, doing the research and understanding the car, it was all about that chassis. Wow. That chassis was what put it uh, aside from all the other manufacturers. The legend. The LFA, a great car. Great car for its time. Great car. And if you have one out there, you can sell it for a lot of money. <laughs> Which I find ridiculous that you can sell a you know, Civic or uh, Acura Integra Type R USDM for like 90 grand now at an auto auction if it's in good condition. Mm-hmm. These prices are ridiculous. I, I don't understand it, but oh well, it is what it is. We have yeah. car inflation. Car inflation at all levels. Yeah. New, new and used. We, we had to pay for all these airbags I'm not using. Exactly. Exactly. Do you think, another question. So then um, <laughs> as like S2000, the price seems to yeah, kind of go up. Oh, absolutely. In, in conjunction with the, so you're saying the type, the old like Integra type R's, mm-hmm. if you have a, like a mint one, yeah. it goes for a lot of it money. It goes for almost 100,000. Last that vehicle more, that went on auction was 85,000. Huh. Is it more nostalgic or do you think there's some type no, of- No, it's because nerds like you guys that grew up in the 80s have now getting rich and that one rich guy- Held it. Hmm, right that's there it? that's okay. exactly the explanation for it yeah where in the past a vehicle that was fetching a high amount a high dollar amount at an auto auction let's say uh, barrett jackson for example was a 37 ford hot rod whatever right or oh, or classic american muscle split window <laughs> 63 split window right now is that 90s mm. integra that mm. 90s nsx those are fetching the high dollar amounts because those nerds grew up and are making money now, oh. right? And those kids who wanted always, always wanted to have those Japanese cars from the 90s mm-hmm. can afford them now at an auto auction and pay ridiculous amounts of money mm-hmm. for it, just like the MK4 Supra. Yeah, They're going for over 100000 Yeah, And if yeah. you have a clean one or like an anniversary edition, you're going to get a lot of money for it. Mm. Again, because generationally, we have grown to now be able to afford those things mm. to where our interest is not that Split window 63. Now is that, you know, 96, 97 Supra NK4, you know, mm-hmm. with the twin turbo original engine still in it. Oh, which, dude, which if I like, had the chance to buy a low mileage mid condition Dodge Neon, a 95 four door, <laughs> I would not do it ever. Or buy it and then put it on fire so that it, <laughs> you could get it out of your memory. Or a hand change. grenade in the window. <laughs> yeah. do, you, do you see a lot of those on the road these days? No. Probably they, not. No. The, they didn't last. They died. The engines and the trannies were... They died. Yeah. Mm. They died. They didn't survive. It was a high-maintenance engine. Uh, what was it? The SRT4? Uh, uh, 
Uh, well, that was the high performance one, right? The high performance, yeah. the that wasn't the was it the neon SRT four? Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. I think so. That yeah. didn't survive either. I don't see a lot of them on the road. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if you have one, you're lucky, or you've never driven it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Those motors would fall apart at like 100, 150. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was sad when they would put them on the Eclipses too. Yeah. Uh, those those Chrysler engines whew, they did not last at all. Mm-hmm. So that's another era or phase or or trend that was huge when it came out. It's like Dodge made a performance car SRT four. Let's yeah. all go to the drag strip. And then like <laughs> ten, days, it up. <laughs> 10 days later, they were blown up and then people had to get rid of them. And now you don't see any of them on the road compared to a classic Toyota Corolla, you know, 86 or like a classic Honda Civic. They're still ticking. Do that SRT4 Neon looked incredible next to a regular stock Neon. Oh, yeah. It looked, it looked meaty and it had a little scoop. Yeah, the hood scoop. Or yeah. I think it was fake scoop, but it had a scoop. Yeah, it gets some air <laughs> in the engine. Yeah, and it said like 2.4 liter on top, a dual overhead cam and yeah. things like that. Oh, yeah, those things were solid. Great looking cars. Fancy wheels. Yeah, and you put a big, you know, fart can exhaust on it, and, and people thought they had, like a, you know, a the jet engine in it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I, guess I, more, I have more <laughs> stuff to say before we close out. Um, <laughs> the, the nerds are rejoicing. Right so this story was on a public road. Um, legally, don't do anything stupid on a public road. Be yes, safe. please. Yes. Control um, environments are the way to go. Um, my friend, <laughs> Jeremy, shout out to Jeremy. He Discla- bought Disclaimer. <laughs> yeah. He has a Corvette. Fuck, which, what year was it? C7, I think. Was it one of the C6 early, or early C7s? Fuck, I forget which one. Damn it. Yeah. It was, was, it, was it more it was, angular? It was probably a C7. It's one of the like new, I want to say within the last last four years. Let's call it a 7. So C7, and uh, I went to go visit him in, in San Diego. He took me for a test drive, and uh, typically in my S2000, I'll, so you know, well, when you're on the driving on the freeway and they have those signs that say slow down to 15 miles because of the right. uh, big circle and then so i like to try to take usually double double posted sign that's what i like to try oh, right. You're a brave so, man over here <laughs> so if it's 15 i'll try to aim for 30 if it says 25 i'll try to aim for 50 um and i i go i once again don't do stupid <laughs> shit on the road <laughs> do not listen to me so i'll <laughs> i'll i'll try to like the first time, if, if it's a 25 mile per hour one, I'll take it at 25. Then I'll go. To oh, you don't just jump automatically yeah, yeah. to double the postage? 30, 35, you 40. You don't dive bomb at a 60? Wow. <laughs> yeah. So self-control right there. So Jeremy had the C7 and he took me, he already test drove it around a couple of, the, of those uh, freeway circles, whatever, uh, the on, on ramps. Big on ramps, yeah. And it was posted 25. Okay. He took me for the very first one. It was at, he took it at 75. I was about to shit my pants. Mm-hmm. But that car held and hugged the damn road the whole time. I w- my jaw was dropped, and I was like, holy fuck. If I were to sell my S2000, this would probably be for that experience. It was that fucking good. Look at that. Wow. Um, you know why the sign says 15, right? What was that? <laughs> you know why the sign says 15, right? Because the sign says 15 is to make it idiot-proof. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because they know there's going to be some people out there with a C7. They're going to take it at 75 yeah. because the car will stick. You can easily do it at 45, 50, no problem. But they're saying to themselves, the DOT is saying, let's put 15 on here because there's going to be some idiot out there who's going to do it at Mm -hmm. 75. Mm -hmm. And we need to make sure that we post the lowest mile an hour we can on this this on-ramp. So at least we post the the lowest one. If they go faster, it's their fault, right? Again, they were making that idiot-proof. Even the DOT has to make stuff idiot-proof, right? I'll I'll say this for our our audience. Uh, Even if you have a car that can do that performance on the road, 
what's dangerous about the open road, the public roads, is that maybe two minutes ago, a dump truck went by and dropped some sand yeah. on there. There was a point where I hit some sand with that neon, and it did not make the turn. Roads are dirty. Uh, the, yeah. the regular traffic roads are dirty. That's why when it starts to rain and you get a light drizzle, all the stuff starts to come up, and people don't yeah. understand that. And the, the, the oil grip, comes the, out of the ass. The grip, the grip that you lose, yeah. and also painted surfaces, those yellow lines, those white lines and stuff, they become ice capades. People don't know this. They think they can still drive at 75 miles an hour doing a straight line on the 15 once it starts to rain, and they think the car's going to stick the same way. Mm-hmm. No, it doesn't. Yeah. 10,000 other cars already dropped some oil, transmission fluid on there, fluids, liquid sand, right? Yeah. So or whenever, fucking tools dropping off the truck. Right. What if you hit a wrench at 70? That's the hard part. So around the corner. I, I got I to gotta add this because we're talking about stuff on the road. Yeah. Um, I do uh, driving school uh, for, for teens for Ford Motor Company. Hopefully they don't listen to the section. <laughs> so we, tra- we, we travel around the country, different sites. My, my teammates can tell you that. And, and um, so we put on these programs to, to help teens uh, drive better. So we bring all these teams of, of, of professional former race car drivers or teams that are people that are in the industry like me to mm. coach these teens, right? When they're getting their permit or they just got their license. Drive faster. Well, we, we put them through some difficult challenges, right? Things that yeah. they've never seen before at a driving school. So the one thing that I always ask, and I do this, this part of the school called hazard recognition mm. to where they need to understand and make decisions quickly when they see something on the road. So we travel to different parts of the country and we say, hey guys, so to the teens, uh, what's the one thing that you see out on the road the most that you think is, is a road hazard? So <laughs> everywhere we go, we get a different answer. So yeah. we usually start in California. So uh, we ask the San Diego kids, hey, what do you guys see out on the road? It's a hazard. Oh, there's some surfboards out there. I said, <laughs> okay, good. All right, makes sense. It's San Diego, right? Uh, when we take our, 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 our show to uh, Nashville, you know, uh, what do you guys see out there? Deer. And the number one answer is deer. I see yeah. deer all the time. The funny thing is, when we went to Phoenix, and I don't know why, the number one answer was a mattress. <laughs> so, through a, <laughs> so through a period of five days, we had different uh, sizes of, of schools come in. Yeah. Uh, and and the, the teams were coming in in, in bunches throughout five days. It was a morning session, an afternoon session. So we saw a lot of teams. Yeah. But the number one answer was always a mattress. In Phoenix? In Phoenix. What are so they doing I'm thinking, out there? I'm thinking there's got to be a guy out there just waiting to drop a mattress <laughs> you know, out of this truck as you're driving on the I-10 in Phoenix. And, and yeah, my, my colleagues can, can tell you that was the number one answer. So to the point where we made a joke about it. It's yeah. like, is that what you guys see here in Phoenix is mattresses? Now it's I know like, where to get a free mattress. Yeah, they're, they're all over the freeway. So I started thinking, you know, and sure enough, on my way to the airport after the event, <laughs> son of a gun, there was a mattress on the freeway. I'll be damned. On my way, on my, <laughs> on my way to Phoenix Sky Harbor, I found a mattress on the freeway. I'm thinking it makes sense now. So every region, every area has their you know their number one Wait, answer. Or is, is it one mattress that never gets picked up? <laughs> <laughs> or, that, or that everyone drives by it. You know, every Phoenix resident has to drive by it. So I find that pretty interesting about objects on the road and hazards on the road that. The number one thing in Phoenix was mattresses. It just had me dying the entire weekend. It was fun. That's so, hilarious. Yeah. Dude, in, in San Diego on uh, Sorrento Valley Road, if you hit that 805 South off-ramp or okay. on-ramp. Yeah, I'm familiar with the 805. So you go, There's this, it's a three-lane on-ramp that kind of goes up a hill and onto the freeway, and then it merges into a two-lane before you get to the freeway. Okay. So I'm in the uh, C5 Corvette, <laughs> and I'm like, I want to get ahead of this guy. I don't want to have to merge behind this slow ass. So I step on it. 
as I'm going into this uh, three lane merging into two and it starts drifting and I power through and I drift this on ramp. Oh boy. And I'm, I'm, I'm sideways through this whole on ramp and fucking take off down the freeway to get ahead of the traffic. And I was like, man, I wish I could have seen that. That must've been the most awesome fucking thing to see if I was a regular dude driving. But unfortunately I couldn't watch myself do that unexpected drift. The, the <laughs> things that I see on the road sometimes and how brave people are in regular cars. Yeah. I sit back and wonder how they're still alive, you know, because people take chances out there and uh, pretty scary sometimes. Yeah. You know what I see a lot? They, uh, there's these cement barriers on the sides of the freeways. Mm -hmm. You start noticing the tire marks on them? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. It's like, man, there's thousands of people hitting these things. The yeah. flyover from the 215 onto the 95 South is, yeah. a, is a high flyover to the left. Oh, man, the right side there, the wall, covered in black. I'm yeah, thinking, were you trying to drive off a cliff? Or? I'm thinking <laughs> you guys can't see a concrete barrier there. It's a giant yeah. barrier. No, it's covered. And, and you'll see it all the time. You see the tire scuffs, uh, you know, yeah. pieces of a headlamp, you know. Um, I've never hit one in my life. I can't imagine. Well, I, the other thing is the damage it must do to your car. Absolutely. Those wreck. things don't move. Yeah. yeah. They're, they're not going to move. And uh, to see that on a, like a flyover like that, that, you know, people are like, I have a death wish. You're trying to go over the thing. Yeah. Um, it's, it's pretty interesting. But yeah, I see it all over town and anywhere I drive. But these are people that would be dead. Yeah, if it wasn't for those barriers. So we'd be a smarter society? If that's, we... why, that's why you have to make things idiot-proof. Right? <laughs> Even the DOT is like, we can put a regular rail there, a guardrail, <laughs> just a skinny metal one. Nah, nah, we had to put the full concrete barrier. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we had to make it idiot-proof. Number one rule of engineering. Uh, you guys are too fun to talk to. I know, but I'm just trying to get to the uh, final questions. All right. I think it's the final question about three times. So. <laughs> right. But he's having too much fun. Audio, awesome I, I feel pretty good about it. I mean, like, if he wants to keep talking, I'm down. Dude, there's been people we've been trying to get off here. Like, All right, let's wrap it up. <laughs> well, that was a great conversation. Bye. <laughs> Gotta go. All right, first of the final questions. What great <laughs> daily habit or habits do you have? Work what? more jobs. <laughs> Work more. <laughs> What daily habits I have? Daily habit or habits uh, that you have? Daily habit. Um, great daily habit. Or great habits. daily habit to... Um, no pressure. No, to make someone laugh at least once. Hmm. And oh, I don't check. have to be a super clown. Um, I just like to make at least one person laugh throughout my day, and then I check that off you know, the, the box, and I'm done. Uh, so, but I, I'm, not, I'm not super funny or like a super comedian or a clown all the time, but... Uh, I just like to crack a joke in once in a while, not a dirty joke or anything, just a situational joke, something that I see happen in the office, and I say something funny, someone laughs, okay, my, my job here is done, I can go home. You know, it could Dude. be 6.30 in the morning, I'm already done. Dude, you had, us at, <laughs> you had us at the DeLorean was a terrible car, but it was a perfect choice. It's a perfect movie. choice. Uh, uh, last Fast and Furious, you guys saw that one? I didn't. Where they went to space. Oh, no, I didn't see that. Okay, one. then I'm not going to spoil it for you. Okay, good. You guys got to watch it. So then you're going to tell me about the perfect car they chose to go to space. Yeah. Must have been a test. Move, Hollywood is awesome. DeLorean. And no, it was oh. not a DeLorean. Oh. You'll see. Okay. Uh, next question. What do you know or think of cryptocurrency? I don't know anything about it, and I think it's scary as heck. And then uh, a lot of my friends watching this who do cryptocurrency are going to be like, you're such a whiz. Um, <laughs> I think it's another trend, honestly. I think it's another trend, and whoever's in it right now making money, please, more power to you. Um, I just don't think it's for me. I, I think there's a scary aspect, aspect to it where it's going to blow up, and then there's going to be a lot of people crying. Uh, but I might be completely wrong. I don't know much about it. I just stay away from it. 
Yeah. yeah, that's too easy. A lot of you wants to work hard to get money. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm old fashioned even in making money. You know, if someone says, "Hey, buy this cryptocurrency, and then you can have three hundred thousand by tomorrow," I'm gonna think about it. I'm not gonna be like, "Yeah, let's buy it." Oh, how much do I have to buy? I'm, I'm very old school. Yeah, yeah. And when it comes to making money, yeah. yeah. All right. Awesome. Next question. What's the biggest problem for humans, and what do we do to fix it? Man, that's a deep question. What kind of podcast is this? Heavy hitter, yeah. <laughs> Good grief. The biggest problems of humans is the... Fun's over, bro. The inability to be caring and compassionate towards others. Where we live in a society that's very independent, a society that's very single, to where others don't matter. And that's one of the biggest things that hurts society these days where the guy sitting next to me, if he's right now bleeding on the floor, I don't want to touch him. I don't want to help him because I'm afraid that if I do something wrong and he survives, he's going to sue me. Mm -hmm. So we have built a society of a lot of alone stuff, a lot of single stuff, a lot of independent people who have lost that care and compassion for others. So that's the biggest thing in my eyes that's hurting humanity. That's a good one, yeah. Well, yeah, I pulled that one out of my rear end. That's awesome. Oh, but it's true. That's though. a great question. Man, you, you got me with that one. A lot of podcasts are, don't go this route. So we're, well done, sir. Yeah. What, uh, what systematic thing would you do to change it? That's going to be a tough one uh, because it has to start with the people and it has to start with uh, society itself and culture. And we are so far off the deep end on lack of culture and education that even though I work in education, I know we're hurting Big time. Like this morning, I saw the article about we're 49th in the country in education. Oh, in Vegas? Yeah. In Nevada? In, in the Clark County School District. Woo! Who are we fighting? Mississippi? Alabama? No, they're actually way, up, way ahead of us. You're getting, getting ahead? So right. I don't know who's 50th. Shit, um, I want to know who's last. But I, I think it needs to take a turn um, in the family structure, which we don't have anymore. Uh, the, the children come from a ton of broken families. So... Uh, if there's going to be any changes, family structure needs to change and education needs to change. Uh, and right now we don't have any of either, unfortunately. Things have, things have broken down so badly where a person without good education, good morals, good value, good family structure is now teaching that to a younger generation and we continue to break down as humans. Um, so if I see a, a person bleeding on the side of the road, I'm going to stop, I'm going to save their life, and help them and then if they sue me i'm gonna kill them <laughs> <laughs> and then you say i should have left you there <laughs> um, and and then we see a lot of things like that to where we don't want to get involved because we are afraid of the consequences oh yeah but we we're not putting our brother or sister first we're putting that fear first because society has made us that way yep uh and it's pretty sad yep. so that's one like i said what's hurting uh, a, us the most that's a deep insight that's a good yeah good one Oh, Next, thank you. Wow, yeah. I, feel, I feel pretty good right now. I, I feel good about you uh, helping my, teams. My ego is just like way up here. <laughs> We're going to need another seat, another bench for my ego, right? <laughs> when I drive home, I'm going to need another back seat. Right? <laughs> Got to put it somewhere. It's going to throw off the weight of your suspension. <laughs> the suspension. It's, gonna, <laughs> it's too heavy. <laughs> throw the balance of the car. <laughs> Next question. What's your favorite food or dish? Favorite food or dish? Um, Questions I, get harder and harder. Man, these geez, these things got... <laughs> more difficult um i am i don't consider myself a big foodie um i do hang out with people who love food um i am a stickler for that spanish food for um and because i grew up in south florida miami 
we had all these influences from the Caribbean, Central South America, right? Oh, Pinto Gallo? Uh, Gallo Pinto is the, other oh, way, is, the other way, is the other way around. No, you got it. You're, you're good. Um, I'm here to help. Okay. Uh, Gracias. Uh, so I grew up with all those influences, uh, food from different countries, and um, Puerto Rican food, Dominican food. So if it's Spanish food, I'm, I'm all about it. You know, I, I love it. Colombian and, and Venezuelan, I, I love it. I love it has to have plantains in it. Oh, if it has plantains, you sold me. <laughs> you can just give me some plantains. I'm going. And, and it's funny. In, in my house, growing up, uh, we're big on rice. Yeah, rice goes with everything. So if you had uh, meatballs and spaghetti, yeah, you have to have a cup of rice right next to it. Otherwise, you're not eating properly. Oh wow! Mm. And if you have plantains, now you're solid. Mm. <laughs> so we will incorporate as a side, whether there were uh, uh, fried plantains or, or, or sweet plantains with rice with anything you ate. If it was a piece of steak, you better have that rice. Mm. And if you go to a restaurant, that's what you're expecting in my culture. Yeah. So, uh, no, I'm not Asian, but I love rice mm. because I grew up in that type of house yeah. uh, and, and that type of culture. It means you're part Asian. <laughs> I might be a little Asian. But, uh, yeah, I'm biased to uh, all Spanish food. Yeah. Okay. Nice. Last question. Shout out two friends that you think should do this podcast. Shout out two friends that should do this podcast. Uh, one definitely is going to be Robert Strummeyer. Uh, he is a realtor here in town, uh, former race car driver, mm. uh, full-time dad. So shout out to Rob. Nice. Um, I used to help him with his racing projects and uh, with his race car. And I was his crew chief too. And um, very knowledgeable guy, former military, uh, excellent individual. Um, I think uh, Robert should be it. And is I he German? Uh, no, he's not. Okay. No. Well, I don't know. No, I think he's, uh, he's got some Irish in him or Scottish. I'm not sure. All right. uh, he'll tell you. Uh, so Robert Strommeyer, <laughs> if you're listening, you, sh you should do this podcast because the way I see him, and I think you guys have Renee here too, good mm -hmm. friend of mine, uh, well-rounded individuals, uh, guys that can talk about you know Lamborghinis and S2000s on the drop of a dime. Mm -hmm. And they can also tell you about the uh, what's lacking in our society as well. So, mm -hmm. uh, so I think uh, Rob will be great uh, to come awesome. and, and do that. Yeah, absolutely. All right, second or second person? Oh, second person. Oh, shit. I forgot about uh, one nice more. Nice try. Oh, man. I thought I was going to sneak out of this one. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think who else can. Again, I have a lot of great friends, a lot of uh, people that I surround myself with, and, and shout out to them. Um, we, need, we need some strong female voices. Some strong female voices. Yeah. I'll represent. Yeah. Now i got to think about a strong female voice that I, could, uh, that I would like for, for her to do this, this podcast. And um, I'm thinking another realtor. So I don't know if you guys are going to be overwhelmed sure, with realtors. Sure um, uh, Candace, uh, Candace Greg, if she can do that too, that would be fantastic. So uh, uh, I think uh, we're all around the people again, very knowledgeable individuals who have been in Las Vegas for a very long time. And I think they can bring a lot of good information, knowledge, and fun. Uh, awesome. They're both very comedic uh, and uh, fun to be around. So yeah, nice. those two. Yeah. Awesome. A female voice. Great, great for thinking about that. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, All right. Realtors tend to be outgoing, too. <laughs> Let's call this the end. Thank, thank the you, end. gentlemen. Cheers. Thank you, Eladio. Cheers. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for coming, it. man. Great talk. Cool.